Today's episode is sponsored by ShipStation. Use my offer code MrCreeps to get a 60-day free trial. Just enough time to handle the holiday rush. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top, and enter code MrCreeps. Hello everyone, I hope that you're all doing well. The cold weather is finally upon us, and with that, we have many scary stories to really set the mood. Cozy up, get a nice warm drink, and let us drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. While I'll never work the night shift ever again, written by Temporary Oxygen. For some context, normally my manager and I will close up. That's how it's always been since I started working there. It's probably because I actually do my job and I get things done. Correctly, I might add. Not that I don't like my coworkers, I do, they're great. But sometimes they fail to do simple tasks, such as mopping up. So, leave it to me. Anyway, let me set the scene. I work in a restaurant, it's not too big and it's not a chain. So I'm just going to call it a restaurant for now. And we've recently opened. So we're still getting used to things, but we've had time to grow together. Thus, bringing most of the restaurant staff closer. We've all been through thick and thin. So this experience only makes us that much closer. Our kitchen closes around 8.30 on weekdays and at 10 on weekends. And if we're dead enough, the kitchen can close early. And normally, they'll leave before me. Benefits of being the one that always does everything. Like I mentioned before, the restaurant isn't that big. There's around less than 15 tables and around 20 seats at the bar. We have a small server station, which is where we'll hang out if we aren't by the hostess stand. Or sitting there rolling silverware. This server stand is right next to the bar. There's that little opening that we can stand at. That's where the table is so we can put our orders in and stuff. We have a small walkway and then bam, you're at the tables. And of course, there is very little room in between these tables. I'll be the first to admit that this wasn't the most thought out plan. Okay, sorry about that. Let's get into the actual story now. It's a Monday evening. We are dead enough to where we can start knocking out some of our tasks. Like sweeping and wiping down tables making sure the dishes make it to the kitchen, etc. The other server is taking down the pot machine and putting the stuff into the sanitized water. I'm sweeping, making sure that things look good, and then I'll move on to tables after that. That's normally my MO. Sweep, tables mop. I mop last, I'm cool like that. By the time that I've swept the entire dining hall and the big guest room, the other server has left already. And it's only my manager and I, which is completely normal. Since we are a part of a camping ground, there's also security and the front desk. And we are the last two in the restaurant. I should also mention that my favorite thing to do is get on our nerves. I'll put stuff in her back pockets, hand her change that I do not need, and ask her stupid questions. She gets annoyed, but it's not the bad kind if that makes sense. So recently up into this day, she had been rather upset with me. 
I imagine it's a mixture of her own personal problems and the fact that I'm just really annoying. So she let me do my thing. She sat at the table doing whatever she needed to do at her computer and I continued to close up. I just wanted to go home. I opened the door to get the mop bucket, which shut loudly behind me, and this left her alone in the main room by herself. I turned the water on and put the tube in the bucket so it could fill up, and I stood there staring out the window. The janitor closet is behind this big locked door, which she'll look at as we're closing. I can still get in, but if you don't have keys, you wouldn't be able to get in from the restaurant. And I let her give me the keys. She was too irritated to do it for me. I fumbled with them between my hands and I liked the weight of it. It gave me something to distract myself with. I would just listen to them jingle in my hand. Around the fill line, I shut the water off and dragged the mop bucket back with me. I pushed the door, again letting it slam behind me. I looked over and saw Olivia sitting there, my manager. She had her phone pressed against her ear and was writing something down. I went to the end of the room and began my last task of the night. I stared out of the door. There are four sets of double doors and two singles, and I noticed a car driving by. I figured it was just somebody getting off of work. It wasn't exactly odd. Ryan, mob, I heard. I shook my head and looked in the direction of where I had heard it. I want to go home. Yes, ma'am. I gave her a smile and pushed the mop forward, still staring out the door. Hey, Liv. Olivia, she corrected. Ah, sorry, Olivia. There's a car just sitting out there, I said. I pointed towards it. She shook her head and turned back towards her computer. I dropped the mop and walked forward. Hey, I'm serious. You and serious don't work well. She muttered. Finish the mopping. I have things to do. I'm sure about that, I retorted. But there is some guy just sitting out there. Mob. Her tone was stern and she was staring at me now. I gulped. I bent over and picked up the mop and began mopping again. But I didn't let the car leave my mind. About 15 minutes later, I was done with the guest area. And all that was left now was the dining area. Man, my grandma can mop faster than you. She said from behind me. I jumped forward tripping over the mop bucket. And it spilled everywhere. Jesus, it was just me. You're scary. I muttered sitting on the floor. My uniform soaked as she reached her hand down to help me up. It's funny considering she's really small. I could easily overpower her. Even though I'm not much taller, for a girl, I am considered tall. I pulled her down next to me. Ryan! She stood up fast and looked super pissed off. Come on, you can never just leave me alone. Hey, you started it, I reasoned. She huffed and stomped away. But I was quick and I grabbed her wrist. Look, I'm sorry. She stared down at her wrist and I let go. I'm sorry. She pushed me back and started walking away again. I went after her. I stopped at the door that I was staring at earlier when something caught my eye. Something walking towards the door. Liv, Olivia, someone's coming. Well, tell them we're closed. I'm going to go change my clothes, she said. I didn't dare argue with her. 
in front of a potential guest. No, that'd be the end of a job. I heard the door close. I walked toward the door and I opened it. Uh, something you needed, sir? I asked. Oh, yeah. He cleared his throat, giving me a creepy smile. Oh, what time do you guys close? Around 8.30 on weekdays, I said, attempting my best smile. He gave me the chills, and not the good kind. And 10 on the weekends. Thank you, he said, smiling again, and I nodded. Is that all? I asked. Could I get your number? This man was around mid-thirties, dirty, disheveled, and not my type. Um, sorry, sir. I'm on the clock, and it's very unprofessional for me to give a guest my number. His smile flattened slightly, but he still managed to keep it. And for one time in my life, for one lovely, wonderful moment, Olivia's crappy attitude saved me. Hello, Olivia said. Hi, he said, not taking his eyes off of me. I would have laughed at her slight jealousy if I weren't so freaking terrified. I was just talking to her. I hate to be that person, she started. But Ryan here, she gripped my shoulders, is still on the clock. Oh, I understand, he muttered. He shuffled around for a second. I'll see you later. I didn't move. I didn't even want to breathe. I'm highly doubtful. She has a long night ahead of her, Olivia said. Now have a good evening, sir. She turned us both away from him. We didn't speak for a couple of minutes. I told you that I wasn't lying, was all that I could say. He was out there for over an hour. Sorry, she whispered. You have to see it from my point of view. You joke around a lot. How do I know this is just a joke? Well, I guess you don't. I didn't mean for it to sound rude, but I realize now that it was totally unfair of me. I'll finish mopping up. I wouldn't want you to miss out on anything. I went to walk away, but she grabbed my arm. Ryan, she started. She looked up at me. I'm sorry. I want to trust you. I really do. But... But... She asked, confused. You want to trust me, I said, but... But you pull this kind of stuff all the time. It's hard to take it seriously, she said. I pushed her arm off of me and walked towards the mob. Ryan, she called. Ryan? What? Are you upset with me? I shook my head. Why do you care? Ryan, why? I care about all of you guys, she said. So if you're upset with me, I should know. Well, I'm actually very upset with you, Olivia. Fair enough, she said. She stuffed her hands into her pockets and looked at me. Actually, no. You can't be mad at me, you pull pranks, you mess around all the time. And you did it to yourself. And... She was cut off by glass shattering. She jumped forward. I stared in the direction that I heard it come from. She walked towards me. If this is a prank, it's not... I whispered. I put the mop down and slowly began making my way over. There were no visible intrusions. I felt her grab my hand. So much for being professional. I joked and she slapped my shoulder. Hello, 
I called out, my voice shaky and afraid, but so was I. Who's there? There was no response, no sounds, no footsteps, and that silence allowed for things to click. I stopped in my tracks when the power went out. I heard her gasp from behind me. Her body pushed up against mine. The warmth brought a momentary comfort, just to know that there was someone else there with me. There was someone else with us. And while her body was pressed up against me, I wish it wasn't. It made me want to be all the more brave. Like I had to prove to her I could protect the both of us. Truth of it all, I was scared out of my mind. I let out a shaky breath. Hello? I called. A moment of silence filled the air once more. There was no response. Liv? It's Olivia, she muttered. But what? I say we make a run to our cars. I suggested. As soon as I say go. Okay, she said gulping. I couldn't for the life of me picture this woman, six years older than me, scared out of her mind. But there she stood, shaking with fear. Her hand rested in mine. I didn't look at her. I just stared ahead, hoping the figure I was staring at wasn't really a figure. Oh, we'll go to mine, it's closer. No way, you suck at driving, she said. My held back a laugh. Fine, as long as it's closer, I nodded. Guiding us through the pitch-dark room, I scanned it. Okay, on three, I said. She nodded. One, two, three, she shouted. She pushed past me, going for the door. I chased after her. She must have seen what I saw. I didn't want to look behind me, but some part of me wanted to. I saw him, the guy from earlier and he didn't look like he just wanted to talk this time. Olivia was calling out for me. She didn't think that I could make it. I couldn't. There was no way. He was way too fast. I felt him grip my shoulder, and I yelped in pain as he yanked me back. Where the heck is security, I thought. I didn't see much, though. I was too scared, and I blacked everything out. I remember I was thinking this was it. I was going to die at the hands of a creep. But apparently Olivia had other plans. She managed to get the guy off of me. How, I have no clue. Like I said, this part is all kind of blurry and hazy to me. I just can't remember the firm grip on my wrist. She wasn't going to let go, but neither was he. And if I had to put money on the 4'11", 100 pound female, or a 6'2", male... I don't think there's a comparison, but I've always put my money on the wrong people. And thank God for that short woman because she managed to kick him so hard that he let go of me. I watched as he cried out in pain and she had yanked me towards her. Things were still a bit blurry at that point, but I remember getting into her car. I remember her driving to a gas station and I remember her calling the police. I remember her sitting in an ambulance and I remember her sitting next to me. All of these little things I remember. But I can't remember what happened. Because I learned that it was five minutes between the guy grabbing me and Olivia getting me. She said that he had said something to me. He had held a knife to my abdomen and threatened to spill my guts if she came any closer. 
I remember her telling me how scared she was, that she never realized she cared about me as much as she did until that moment. I remember the look on her face when she first saw me talking to him, the look of pure annoyance that he was there, the one I would have worn if I wasn't so scared. I remember her hand in mine as the doctors examined the both of us. I remember her driving to my apartment and staying because I was too scared. That's all I can remember. I told the police what the guy looked like. I told him that he was there for a while before coming to the door. I told him everything I could. We never heard anything else. Just that we should be careful. It still makes me laugh that that's all that they could do. I still work there. I just refuse to work night shifts unless there's two or three other people there with us. And Olivia still works there too. Moral of the story, just be careful when closing. If you see something, go with your gut. It just might save you. I would like to take a minute to talk about today's sponsor, ShipStation. If you're running an online store, you know just how hectic the holidays can be. They're the most wonderful time of the year, but it can be overwhelming managing your inventory and fulfilling orders when you have a growing list of stressed out customers, wondering whether those last minute gifts will arrive in time. With ShipStation, the hassle of shipping out holiday orders melts away, leaving you with happier customers and more freedom to run your business or enjoy some much needed time off. I know for me personally, ShipStation has been a gigantic help with making sure all of my orders go out in time. The difference compared to how I used to manually ship out all of my merchandise orders is huge. ShipStation has lifted a huge weight off my shoulders with their amazing automated systems, and I can't recommend them enough. Changing your shipping solution can seem daunting, but streamlining my shipments with ShipStation has been one of the best moves that I made. And with the holidays here, now is definitely the time to make a change for the better. Make this holiday season a little brighter with ShipStation. Use my offer code MrCreeps to get a 60-day free trial. Just enough time to handle the holiday rush. Go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top, and enter code MrCreeps. ShipStation. Make ship happen. My grandmother worshipped strange gods under the sea. I met her in the fall of 1995. Written by Certain Emergency 122. Dad passed when I was 13 years old. The memory I associate most strongly with him is the time he took us to his family cabin in New Hampshire. Autumn set all the leaves of the surrounding woods on fire and drove the midges and black flies away. We spent the entire weekend hiking on Mount Monadnock and swimming around the lake nearby the cabin. That night, Dad told us silly ghost stories. I remember the three of us laughing together as we sang along to Leo Sayers more than I can say. And I remember seeing the stars one night seeing them for the first time without any light pollution to obscure them, and being so stunned by their beauty that my heart nearly stopped. 
A few months after he had passed, Mom took me up to Maine to meet my paternal grandmother for the first time. On her drive up, my mom told me that while Grandma had agreed to let me stay at her house, she had a bad temper and I needed to steer clear of her. She made me promise that I would do my best to avoid upsetting Grandma before she let me leave the car. I'll come back to pick you up in a week or so. Be a good girl for your grandmother, honey. And then half to herself. I can't wait for us to sell the house. I knew that we needed to finish packing up the house before we sold it. I wanted to help out, I would have, if not for these smiling men in black suits. According to my mom, they were just debt collectors who wanted to talk about dad. I had been in complete agreement until three days ago, when I woke up in the middle of the night and thought that I saw one of them standing outside my bedroom window, smiling at me and drooling. Mom said that I must have been dreaming, and even though she was probably right, I still begged her to let me stay somewhere else for a while. Mom backed her car up, waved at me one last time, and drove away. I turned to see Grandma waiting for me on the porch, tapping her foot and glaring at me with dark, sunken eyes. She hadn't deigned to speak to my mom. Now, she said sharply, Come along then, I haven't got all day. And we gave each other appraising looks. A disproportionately small head sat on Grandma's large, plump body, and her face reminded me of a shrunken apple with a mouth full of too many teeth. Doughy flesh sagged from her arms. Dad used to read me Little Red Riding Hood every night, and before I told him that, bedtime stories were for babies. Now a line from that story occurred to me. Grandmother, what big teeth you have. Grandma lowered her face to mine. During these next two weeks, you are not to bother me. You are not to stick your nose where it doesn't belong. And you are most certainly not allowed to enter the bedroom. Is that understood, Alicia? I nodded. She had mispronounced my name as Alicia instead of Alisa. But I didn't correct her. The truth was, Grandma frightened me. She loomed over me like a witch out of a twisted fairy tale, and she smelled like mothballs. The obvious dislike in her eyes told me that if I ever put a toe out of line, she would make me regret it. As I followed Grandma into the house, I couldn't help but wonder if I had made a mistake by asking my mom to send me here. The upside of staying with Grandma was that she lived in a beautiful house right by Winterhill Beach. The surf roared at me constantly and at night. It was like listening to the heartbeat of some giant animal. Those first few days, I would run to the living room as soon as I woke up, because it had huge windows that faced the sea. For such an idyllic place, it was oddly deserted. There were no families out there with their towels and beach umbrellas. No kids my age or younger building sandcastles or riding the waves on boogie boards. And no college students partying around bonfires or playing volleyball. The downside of staying with grandma was that she terrified me more and more as each day passed. She spent mornings and afternoons in her bedroom, the door firmly shut and locked. Late at night, usually around 3am, 
she left the house to walk along the beach. Early on in my stay, I went to her bedroom one afternoon to ask her where she kept spare paper towels. Before my knuckles could do more than brush the door, Grandma leapt out with her hands stretched in the claws and shrieked at me to leave, causing me to drop the empty paper towel roll. And as she slammed the door shut, I caught a brief glimpse of something moving behind her, something that cast a grotesque and misshapen shadow. After that, I stayed out of her way as much as possible. It was on my fifth day of our week together that I found Grandma's book. I only noticed it because I had knocked the remote control to the floor. She had hidden the book under one of the living room couches, the one opposite the windows looking out over the beach. The book's cover was made out of a soft, stretchy material that felt strangely familiar under my hands, although I didn't recognize it. I considered putting the book back under the sofa. I really did. But frankly, I was bored and lonely. Since my mom had left, I hadn't spoken to another living soul, and grandma yelling at me didn't count. My only options for entertainment were a couple of National Geographic magazines dating back to the late 70s, a TV that went on the fritz more often than not, and collecting seashells on the beach for the thousandth time. What harm could it do if I read a few pages? Decision made. I opened the book and immediately dropped it with a cry of disgust. The first page had depicted a naked woman and something embracing her, something inhuman with a half a dozen black eyes and needle-sharp teeth. Together, they held a small, bleeding body between them. I couldn't tell what it was supposed to be because it had been flayed open. My heart pounding, I picked the book back up carefully as if it could bite me. I flipped through the next few pages and discovered that the book had been written in a foreign language. I only knew English and Mandarin Chinese, the latter because my mom's grandparents had immigrated to America from there, but this language was neither. I peered at the page more closely. The longer that I stared at the words, the more they seemed alive. As I watched, the words began to writhe and wriggle across the page like small black worms. Various images flashed through my mind. I saw a crumbling white tower near the bottom of the sea, in the abyssal zone, where there was no light and I shouldn't have been able to perceive it. I saw the ghostly figures of hundreds of children laboring to repair the tower, and to build it even higher. The children wept as they worked. They all had terrible wounds and one child cradled his own head in both arms. I saw creatures in the shape of manta rays, with wingspans approximately 40 feet, covered with multiple bulging black eyes and beaked mouths. They descended on any child who tried to run. I saw an enormous ball of neon blue light that pulsed and flickered, beckoning me forward, and underneath everything else, in the unfathomable depths of the ocean, where no human had ever gone. Something leviathan in size stirred in the darkness and sent a lone fish with bony rays darting away. The sound of the telephone ringing and the fearful thought that Grandma might leave her bedroom to answer it caused me to drop the book. 
Instantly, the images vanished and I became aware of a piercing pain in both eyes. As I clapped my hands over them, I touched something wet. Blood. My eyes had been bleeding while I read the book, and my legs shook as though I had just gotten off a roller coaster that had done several barrel rolls and inverted loops. Was I down there in the ocean watching the children slave away for the creatures under the sea? Or was I back on my own body, standing in the middle of the living room? After the dizziness had faded away, I slid the book back under the couch, trying to make sure that it was back in exactly the same spot. Then I retreated to my bedroom and dwelled on everything that I had seen. I told myself countless times to stop thinking about it, to forget it. I might as well have told myself to stop breathing or to learn how to fly. I had to find out more. I had to. Curiosity burned inside of me, threatening to engulf my body in its unbearably hot flames. I saw the ball of neon blue light every time I closed my eyes. If I could just see what lived underneath it. Grandma must know what it is. It's her book. But how could I convince her to tell me? I slammed my right fist into the palm of my other hand. I couldn't. She would never tell me. And if she found out that I had been reading her book, she might kick me out. Or do something even worse. A persuasive voice spoke to me then. Sly and wielding. Go inside her bedroom. You'll be able to find out more if you do that. I hesitated for a moment, remembering how my mom had made me promise not to upset Grandma. But who said Grandma would ever find out? Tonight, after she left for one of her late-night beach walks, I could slip into her room, search for more information on the book, and slip back out before she even realized I had been there. What could go wrong? I crept out of my bedroom after hearing the now familiar slam of the front door closing. The shoe rack confirmed what I had suspected. Grandma had left. The fuzzy slippers she usually wore around the house and which her sweat had long since stained yellow sat in the shoe rack in place of the blue sneakers that she wore outside. Still, a small part of me couldn't help wondering, what if she hadn't left? What if she was sitting on the couch with the lights off, her enormous white body motionless, watching me with her dark, sunken eyes? And what if she expected me to go down the hallway and open the door? Actually was in fact waiting for it, and as soon as I did, she would dig her long, dirty fingernails into my shoulder, wrench me around a face or end, and... It took a thousand years to walk down the dark hallway leading to Grandma's bedroom. I knew that I should turn around and go to sleep, and still I continued moving forward. I pictured a shadowy figure hovering above me and manipulating some puppet strings attached to my feet, but that was just an excuse. My curiosity drove me forward, nothing else. As I reached out to open the bedroom door, I recalled in vivid detail one of the illustrations that had accompanied a bluebeard. Another fairy tale that my dad used to read to me before I fell asleep. The illustration had shown Bluebeard's newest wife opening the forbidden closet door, glancing around furtively as she did so, only to freeze in horror at the sight of his previous wives dangling from the ceiling, their blood staining the wooden floorboards red, 
maybe I've made a mistake. Right as this thought occurred to me, I heard the front door slam open and the taste of copper filled my mouth. I would never be able to make it back to my own bedroom in time. Without hesitation, I opened the bedroom door and stepped through. Grandma had left black candles burning around the room, and their dim light illuminated a king-sized bed, as well as a table directly across from it. The room was bare of any other furniture. No dresser, no nightstands, no armchair. Heavy footsteps thudded down the hallway. There was only really one place to hide. Under the bed. I threw myself down and managed to thrust my arms and my head through. And then the bed frame jabbed into my shoulders, trapping me in place. I lay there, three quarters of my body visible, and dug my toes frantically into the floor to try and propel myself forward. Gritting my teeth against the pain in my shoulders, I managed to scrape them past the bed frame. The rest of my body slithered easily under the bed. Just in time, too. The door flew open and Grandma's slippers whispered against the floor as she shuffled in. I heard a click that signaled the door had been locked. Panic gnawed on my stomach. I was trapped here until she fell asleep. And if she didn't fall asleep, I would be stuck here an entire day until she left again tomorrow night. I tried to swallow but my mouth was too dry. Please, please, please let Grandma go to sleep soon. A thud. I raised myself up enough to see that Grandma had fallen to her knees in front of the only other piece of furniture in the room, her back to me. I noticed now that an odd assortment of knickknacks had been scattered across the table. A huge seashell conch, a bell, several pairs of baby shoes, and other items that I couldn't make out. Grandma genuflected several times, lowering her head until it touched the floor. Neither of my parents had raised me to believe in any particular religion. Instead, they preferred feeding me a steady diet of fairy tales and episodes from the X-Files. I had, however, attended Catholic school for two years before we had moved to Massachusetts, and I could tell that the table was meant to be Grandma's altar, and that she was praying. Grandma shouted words in an unfamiliar language. They hurt my ears. Not because of the volume with which she had shot at them, but because they somehow had the auditory equivalent of sharp little spikes. They stung and I flinched away from them. Unfortunately, there wasn't enough space under the bed for me to back up any further. She turned to a small and wriggling bundle beside her. I had been too absorbed in her strange behavior to notice it before, but it made a fussing noise. Grandma brought her arm down in an abrupt motion and the noise stopped. Glory to you, my lord. I bring this sacrifice so that I might join you under the sea. Sacrifice? Forgetting myself, I tried to push myself under my elbows and immediately slammed the top of my head against the bed frame. The pain brought tears to my eyes. That didn't matter, though, because I could see what she held up in the air now. A baby... One of indeterminate age and gender, with a chubby face and big dark blue eyes. It stared unseeingly at the altar. Uncertain light from the candle showed me the deep gash in its throat. It had one tiny hand outstretched as if to flag someone down for help. Mercifully, 
I only saw it for a few seconds before Grandma tossed it to the floor and the darkness hid it from view. She raised both arms again, swaying in place to music only that she could hear. As I watched, my entire body trembling as though in the grip of a deadly fever, a piece of darkness detached from the shadows on the altar. It advanced to where she had set on the baby. I knew that shape. I had seen it when I had asked Grandma where she kept her spare paper towels, and although I hadn't realized it until now, I had seen it again while reading the book. It had been one of the creatures tormenting the children. It's just a shadow. My mind gibbered. It can't hurt you. It can't hurt anyone. A slurping sound. Loud chewing and frenzied gulps. Something tearing me to part and gnawing on tiny bones. I closed my eyes, desperately telling myself that this couldn't be what I thought. Unexpectedly, images began to flash through my mind. The same ones I had seen when I had read the book earlier. But no, this time, they were more than one-dimensional images. I was there inside of them. I flew above the ocean, the salty spray of the waves splashing against my face. A freezing wind tore at my clothes and whipped my hair on my face as I swooped downwards, like a cormorant diving into the waves to hunt fish. Except I didn't fly back up. No, I went deeper into the ocean. I struggled, wondering if this vision was real enough for me to drown or to be crushed by the pressure of the depths. Neither happened, though. I could still breathe and move, though an inexorable forest dragged me downwards. I sped past the white tower and the children who sought to build it higher, past the beings that looked like monstrous manta rays, the beings that my grandmother worshipped as gods. I kept descending. The mysterious blue light grew closer and closer, bobbing back and forth in the darkness. I felt compelled to touch it, to hold it in my hands, yet that same force ripped me away from the inviting blue light. Down, down, down. That was when I realized that the light had been attached to something all along. Something at the very bottom of the ocean. Finally, I saw it. And it saw me. One eye rolled open to regard me. Round as the eye of a giant squid, but infinitely larger. A band of shimmering colors surrounded its black pupil. I could put no names to those colors because they didn't exist on Earth. The eye disappeared momentarily from view, and then it reappeared. This movement sent shockwaves through the water, and I heard the screams of the children who labored at the foot of the white tower. High, despairing screams. The screams of the lost and forgotten. Within that one eye, I saw an alien planet where up was down, right was left, and day was night and where insanity-inducing beings in the sky fed in the anguish of those below. An ecstasy of pure terror filled through me, turning me into a heaving, whimpering mass of nerve endings. Terror filled every corner of my mind and obliterated all rational thought. One scream after another tore itself free from my throat, deep, guttural shrieks that I had never known existed within me. I couldn't have stopped screaming if I tried. Its eye remained fixed on me even as it sifted through my mind the way a gold prospector strained sand from gold. Suddenly, I was floating at the bottom of the ocean, staring down at something that hurt my brain to look at. 
I wasn't back in Grandma's bedroom either. Instead, I sat in the back of the car, too excited to stay still. We were on our way to Dad's family cabin in New Hampshire, the one that he had inherited from his great-grandparents, and I couldn't wait to swim in the lake and hike Mount Mondadak again. Mom had also finally agreed to go apple picking with us. The radio warbled out Brian Adams' Everything I Do, and my dad sang along with it, purposefully off-key to make me laugh. He turned to smile at me and my mom shrieked, Adam, look out! Our car tires squealed as dad tried to swerve us out of the way of the semi-truck barreling towards us. I briefly saw the driver's white, trembling face before he disappeared from view. I cried on an alarm as the side of his truck began to fill our windshield, first a little and then all at once, and still it kept racing towards us, filling not only our windshield now but our entire world, until all I could see was the black letters on its side screaming, Penville Motor Freight. I woke up to the sound of mom crying. My head was in her lap and her hands touched my face, my arms, checking me over for injuries. We were outside of the car. I turned my head and saw that the front of the car had been crumpled into an accordion. The asphalt burned every exposed inch of my skin. I pulled away from her. Where's daddy? Don't, Elisa, don't. But I did. I stumbled to my feet and brushed away my mom's hands. I took two steps forward and saw the watch that dad always wore. The one with a brown leather strap and three small silver clocks inside its face. It was lying on the ground by itself. I picked it up and noticed that it was still warm. Blood began to run down it in a thick line. Clutching the watch to myself, hugging it even though the blood smeared the front of my t-shirt, I took another two steps forward and saw my dad. Except I didn't know that it was him at first. The car crash had spilled his broken and torn body onto the burning asphalt. My dad's dark blue eyes stared unseeingly at the cars whizzing past us. A huge swath of red trailed from him to my feet. Behind me, my mom started screaming. And then that horrible day started again, and again and again. How many times did it make me relive the day that my dad died? How many times did I pick up my dad's bloody watch? How long before it became bored of my agony and fell back into an uneasy sleep? I don't know. What I do know is that the idea of this torment ever ending, the very concept of the future, became a cruel and pointless joke. There was only the present and the present was endless. My mind started to fray under the pressure of remembered grief like a well-worn rope close to snapping into two pieces. When I came back to myself, I was in Grandma's bedroom, my throat raw and aching from screaming. I had ripped off three of the fingernails on my left hand from clawing at the underside of her bed. I turned my neck on rusty hinges to see a line of wet footprints leading to the altar. The bedroom was empty. I knew then that Grandma had descended and now lived under the ocean by the White Tower. I don't know what happened after that. I must have run out of the bedroom and away from Grandma's house. Maybe I had hitchhiked my way from Winterhill Beach back to Penville, or I took a Greyhound bus. The next thing I remember is standing in front of our house, 
knocking on the door and crying so hard that I could barely breathe. My mom ran out and hugged me, asking me where I had been all this time. Two weeks had passed. I couldn't answer her. When I think too much about what sleeps under the sea, I want to start screaming and never stop. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is that it took something from me that day. For the past few years, I've lived in a glass cocoon. The only emotions that I can get through are terror, rage, grief, and exhaustion. I can't feel happiness anymore, much less love. Most days, I can't feel anything at all. My mom took me to a therapist who told me that I had hallucinated it all. He had prescribed medication, taught me grounding exercises, and gave me cognitive behavioral therapy worksheets. It didn't work. All it did was confirm what I already expected. No one believed me and ever would. Therapy wasn't a complete waste of time, though. I often relive that moment in my nightmares. The moment that I stared into a colossal eye and saw an alien planet. When that happens, I wake up not knowing where I am. The grounding exercises help anchor me to the present. They remind me that I'm in my bed in Nebraska, somewhere that is surrounded by three other states on all sides from the nearest bay, Gulf, or ocean. I don't ever want to see any ocean again, especially the Atlantic Ocean. On that day at Grandma's house, I learned that there's something sleeping down there at the very bottom. Something incomprehensible in its vastness. Something that was old back when our ancestors still lived in caves and hunted food with sharpened sticks. Something worshipped by other gods. When it finally awakens and rises from the sea, it will bring untold suffering and insanity to every living thing on this planet. And death won't be the end for any of us. There is a door on the second floor of our house that leads nowhere. But something has been knocking. Written by Decorative Gentlemen. My family and I moved into 413 Rutherford Lane about six months ago. It seemed like a nice enough house. Fairly large with a wide porch and a big backyard. I know almost nothing about architecture, otherwise I would try to describe it better. But among the houses of our neighborhood, ours is distinctive. Despite the numerous quirks about the house and the property on which it sits, one feature in particular has persistently drawn my curiosity. A door off of the upstairs hallway that leads to nowhere. Now you may have seen doors like this before in older homes. A remnant of a balcony that's no longer there, or something similar. But this door is different from all the other doors in the house. It's a bit taller and narrower than the rest and in spite of the crooked door frame, its door fits it perfectly. Now understand, there is a door on the outside of the house to match the inside. But that door looks shorter, more even. Maybe it's just the 15 or so feet between the door and the ground that makes it look that way. But it's still strange, and it locks from the outside. 
When we moved in, my sister hated the door almost as much as I was fascinated by it. It was right next to her bedroom and around a week into living in the house, we were all awoken by her scream in the middle of the night. My mom and dad came into the hallway before me, but I arrived in time to hear her ranting about hearing a knock from the other side of the door. My dad assured her that it was nothing, a bad dream or possibly a bird pecking at the wood, but Rachel insisted it was a knock. I wish I had listened, that I had believed her then. The nighttime screams continued as the weeks passed and two months ago, my mom and dad convinced me to switch rooms with Rachel on account of me being such a brave older brother. My old room had been bigger, but I got a promise of a new computer out of the exchange, so it was a sacrifice that I was willing to make. I didn't hear a knock my first night in the room, but around 10pm, I did become aware of an uncomfortable heat and humidity that my old room didn't have. It was almost as though a sort of reverse air conditioner had turned on. I tried to explain it away in my mind. Perhaps the old house was as patchwork as the door had suggested, the heating uneven. Truthfully, it wasn't creepy, just different. I slept fitfully that night and the next few after, waking up drenched in sweat as my dad grumbled about home inspections and the cost of repairs. I suppose he might have been relieved a week later, when the issue seemed to resolve itself. But that same night, I heard the knocking too. Honestly, despite Rachel's state of fear over the whole thing, I have expected it to be a light tap, like the kind a branch makes against the window during a storm. But instead, I was awoken from a dead sleep by a loud banging. I remember thinking in that moment that I could figure out what it was. I wasn't exactly scared, startled certainly, but I was more curious than anything else. I jumped out of bed and ran into the hallway. Whatever I was expecting to see in the darkness of the hallway, as I rounded the corner toward the door... It wasn't my sister. She stood directly in front of it, facing away from me, and she was swaying from side to side, ever so slightly. Rachel, what are you doing? Something about the way she was breathing made me uneasy, and she didn't look back to me even when she had responded. He's been here so long. I had no clue what she meant, but I took a tentative step forward. Three thuds came on the door. I jumped back as I watched the doorframe cough dust into still air. It wasn't a knocking, but it was a pounding. A sound that should have definitely woken my light sleeping mother, if not both of my parents. But I heard no stirring afterward. Just the sound of my heartbeat and my sister's even breasts. I was shaking. 
My sister hadn't reacted in the slightest. She just stood there, rooted to the floor, gently swaying with an unnerving fluidity. Rachel, I whispered. I remember my voice trembling as I braced for another stab. Another wood creaking slam. I stabbed. No knock. I stepped again. Silence. Two more steps and I had gotten to Rachel. The steady breathing, the swaying. Her eyes were closed. She was sleeping. He's been here so long. So long, so long. I heard my sister repeating it over and over again. But as I stood next to her, looking at her face, a chill ran down my spine. I heard her, but the movement of her lips didn't match the words that they made. I shouted for my mom and dad, but as soon as my voice began to rise, the thudding began again. The small alcove where the door was situated rattled with the angry slams and as I stood, petrified. I suddenly became aware of the humid heat. It was like the heat that I had felt in my new room, but far more oppressive and enveloping. There was a weight to it, a drowsy sort of blanketing weight. I don't remember much of what happened next, other than my eyes fluttering and my body sagging. I must have lost consciousness, in fact, I'm sure that I did. But before everything went black, I distinctly remember the doorknob turning and the door creaking open. The next thing I remember was walking down a hallway without the faintest notion of how I had gotten there. I didn't wake up on the floor or anything as normal as that. I was just walking as my awareness slowly grew. I think I was saying something before my autonomous action had ceased, though now I can't recall what. Now, this was not a familiar hallway. It wasn't in my house, and I knew I should have been, but in that moment, my memory was fuzzy. I was wearing pajamas. I had no phone and had no idea of why I was there. Luckily, the hallway was lit, but by what, I couldn't say. The space was simply diffused with a dim, shifting light, like that caused by a candle, but it had no apparent source. There were no doors that I could see, no windows either, just a cream-colored ceiling and carpet and the walls on either side. The walls were covered with a peculiar wallpaper. I remember looking down at the floor a lot, at my bare feet, because whatever pattern was on that wallpaper was difficult to look at. To this day, I couldn't accurately describe it other than to say that it had an odd complexity that gave the impression of something that ought to have caused an optical illusion. The hallway itself was narrow, turning abruptly at right angles, with no individual stretch of it being longer than one or two hundred feet, and while there were intersections with other seemingly identical hallways, the geometry of the place didn't make sense. I would start at a four-way intersection, 
make three right turns and end up at a three-way intersection. If I backtracked, more often than not, there would be no intersection at all when I had returned to my original spot. None of it made sense, and in my shift from confusion to frustration, to fear and to despair, I was palpably aware of the claustrophobia of the infinite monotony and the unfamiliar regularity. The only things that truly seemed familiar were the humid heat of the place and a phrase that kept repeating in my mind. He's been there so long. Occasionally, I would glance forward at the wallpaper and swear that the patterns formed the words in slithering, twisted letters. He's been there so long. But then the words would go, fading into maddening obscurity as I continued staring. I can't tell you how long I wandered those hallways, days I think, without a phone or a view of the outside. There was no way to judge the passage of time. I did grow hungry, but water wasn't an issue, as the humidity was so great that the walls ran with condensation, and I could suck a mouthful out of the wet carpet when I was desperate. More than anything, the uncertainty and the isolation were the hardest parts. At some point, though, I started to get the feeling that I was being followed. Perhaps it was the loneliness, I reasoned. Even then trying to apply rationality, Two circumstances that clearly had none. The wet squishes of my feet against the floor would stop when I did, but more would follow for a step or two. Squish, squish, squish. Now and then, they would skitter behind me. I would hear their quick approach, only to turn and see nothing there but the wallpaper. This was hell. That's what I decided after a time. I would curl up on the sodden floor and sleep. I would wake, walk, and I try to remember the death that must have led me there. Then at some point, during the monotonous routine of mere existence, I turned a corner and saw a door. As I recall, I had almost forgotten that I was looking for a way out that there was any goal to the endless winding march. But when I saw that door, everything came back into focus. I remembered my sister and my parents, the knocking and pounding. But I remembered, or perhaps realized, something else as well. I stood frozen in place, my trembling hand inches from the doorknob as I urged it to move forward that little extra bit. The footsteps that I had heard following me, and those moments when they hurried and I saw nothing, as I looked over my shoulder. It wasn't that I couldn't see what was following me, but I could hear it. I just couldn't even remember. Fear is a funny way of warping memory, emphasizing half-truths or embellishments and painting over those moments of genuine terror until something more palatable remains. I remember hearing a steady breath behind me and feeling the words coalesce in my mind as if spoken in a memory that I had yet to make. 
I've been here so long. I don't remember turning the knob or the fall. I broke my wrist and dislocated my shoulder. But I was alive and more importantly, I was free. My dad had no explanation for why the hallway door had come unlocked. And even less for how it had managed to lock itself back. But when I returned from the hospital, he already had contractors framing the alcove for a wall to cover it. My parents visited me frequently while I was recovering in the hospital from the fall and this seemingly inexplicable malnourishment. But one thing struck me as odd about their visits. My parents always came together, but never brought my sister. I asked about it on my second day of recovery. Hey dad, why doesn't Rachel ever come to visit with you? He looked up from a book that he had brought and knitted his brow. Who's Rachel? I stared at him as he stared back, mirroring my confusion. My, my sister. When I saw the look of concern on my mother's face, my stomach dropped. Who's Rachel? He was serious. My parents urged me to see a neurologist after that exchange. My brain looked normal, but I didn't feel normal. I know my sister, I remember her, but apparently I'm the only one who does. My mom confirmed the story about the knocking, but she said that it was me who had awoken my parents screaming. They had thought it was strange when I insisted on moving into the small room beside the alcove with the door, but ultimately they had relented. Mom said that I had seemed obsessed with being near the door, and yet whenever she saw me pass it, she said that I seemed terrified. I moved back to my old room when I returned home. My original room, that is. It was vacant. No Rachel, no mementos of her existence. Just a collection of boxes and these seeds of a sewing machine. It's been difficult to get used to it. Not having Rachel around, but I'd been trying. I had been feeling better, getting better, and trying to forget. I had been until last night. I was walking by the small room next to the now walled off alcove. The door was opened and I had passed. A wave of humidity drew my attention. The window in the room was cracked open just a few inches, and in the foggy condensation on the glass, I saw that something had been written as if with a finger. So long. I'll be here. You'll be back. There's an unexplored cave system in Yellowstone. It should stay that way. Written by Certain Emergency 122. It had been Adrian's idea to check out this unexplored cave system, and I was deeply regretting my decision to accompany him. But I wanted one last good memory with him, and honestly, I felt guilty. We had both known that our six-year-long relationship was nearing its expiration date, but I was the one who had instigated our breakup. And now, we were crawling on all fours through a tight tunnel. My helmet scraped loudly against the ceiling of the tunnel. It was definitely becoming narrower. 
Stone pressed down on me from all sides and I couldn't seem to take deep enough breaths. An image floated through my mind. Someone squeezing a tube of toothpaste until the paste spilled out and over their hand. Adrian, I yelled. Can you hear me? No response. He had been ahead of me only a minute ago. There wasn't enough space for me to turn around. If I wanted to go back, I would have to crawl backwards without being able to see what was behind me. I paused for a moment and concentrated on taking one measured breath after another. I was not going to have a panic attack here. I reminded myself that Adrian had made it through to the other side. That meant that the tunnel would widen at some point. Probably. Maybe. A few minutes later, the tunnel spat me out into a low, wide chamber. The stone walls here also a rich brown striped with white and yellow. Stalactites hung from the ceiling, and flowstones decorated the walls. I had spent a few minutes simply lying on my back, sucking in one deep breath of air after another. I would never take breathing for granted again. From what seemed like a great distance, Adrian said, Hey, I found a shaft. It has to be at least 200 feet. I pushed myself up and blinked away the purple spots that danced across my vision. Adrian was crouched down next to a hole in the middle of the chamber. It led down to an impenetrable darkness. He had already put on his caving harness and was pulling out a climbing rope from his backpack. Are you sure that we should keep going? I tried to keep my voice neutral. I didn't want to set him off. The last thing I wanted was for us to start arguing again. But what if we ran out of water and became lost? We had already spent the past two hours exploring the cavern before finding the tunnel. And my water bottle was three quarters empty too. He laughed. Oh, don't be such a worrywart, Alice. I glared at him. This is why I had known our breakup was inevitable. To Adrian, I would always be the girl with generalized anxiety disorder. He viewed everything I thought and felt through the lens of my disorder, and it was a constant battle to get him to take my concerns seriously. But as we descended, wonder eclipsed my frustration and worry. We weren't even halfway down, and we had already passed several other openings, ones that probably led to other cabins or maybe even other shafts. The sheer size of this cave system was astounding. How on earth had it remained undiscovered for so long? I unlocked the descender and slid down the last few feet, landing with a grunt. The impact rattled my teeth. When I turned on my flashlight, I forgot how to breathe. We stood in a vast cavern. It was so huge that I couldn't even see the walls or ceiling and my flashlight barely illuminated the space around us. Someone could have transported an entire bustling city down here, full of thousands of people, with plenty of room to spare. Adrian grinned at me and said, I wish I could stay here forever. I agreed. Before I had met him, I had thought that spending your spare time squeezing through tight, damp spaces for fun was insane. Granted, I still thought that it was insane, but I understood the appeal of it now. It was intoxicating to discover the unknown, 
and to know that you were one of the few people who had ever ventured here. He shouldered off his backpack and pulled out a glow stick, and when he snapped it in half, it cast a ghostly yellow light. He dropped it on the floor and said, Come on, let's keep going. I want to map out as much of it as I can. Adrian charged ahead, whereas I walked slowly behind. I didn't want to find out the hard way that the ground in front of us dropped off into a sheer cliff. I imagined falling helplessly, aware that I only had seconds to live and unable to do anything about it. Sharp rocks piercing my skin and pinning me in place like a butterfly in an entomologist's collection. As I trudged through the darkness, I realized something odd. We hadn't seen a single creature in this cave system so far. No snakes, salamanders, not even spiders and beetles. The cavern eventually led us to three different tunnels and I caught up with Adrian there. The one in the middle was small, even smaller than the tunnel that we had crawled through earlier. We wouldn't fit. The one on the right sloped uphill while the left one remained level. Other than those superficial differences, the two seemed more or less the same to my uneducated eyes. Which way? I asked. Before Adrian could answer, shrieks rang through the air. They came from the tunnel on the left. I took a step back involuntarily. Nothing human had ever produced shrieks like that. Goosebumps crawled on my arms and I fought the urge to blindly run away in the opposite direction. What the heck was that? I shook my head. I don't know, but I think we should leave, like right now. The shrieks repeated themselves. This time they were closer, much closer, and they were accompanied by an eerie hissing noise. I knew with awful certainty that there was something headed straight towards us. Let's go, I shouted, yanking at Adrian's arm. Finally, he got with the program and started running. We went down the right-hand tunnel which branched off into a dizzying array of various passageways. Panic overrode all rational thought, and I forgot to keep track of the twists and turns that we had already taken. It didn't help that we sometimes had to double back when the passage led to a dead end, or became too narrow to continue. No matter how quickly we ran, or which way we went, the thing from the tunnel continued to chase us. Its shriek soon drowned out the sound of our ragged breathing. It was gaining on us. Worse still, I knew that I couldn't keep up this pace for much longer. A stitch burned in my side and my breath came in heaving gasps. Inspiration struck. Maybe we couldn't outrun it, but we could hide from it. I shoved at Adrian until he stopped running and gestured frantically towards a nearby fissure. I had to scramble into it with my head turned sideways to fit. Adrian threw himself into it after me, and as he did so, his headlamp fell to the floor and shattered, plunging us in darkness. Stone walls cradled my helmet between two freezing, unyielding hands. My cheek caught on the jagged edge of one of the rocks and tore open, soaking the color of my jacket with blood. I barely even noticed. I kept going deeper into the fissure until I could no longer move. The shrieks had stopped at some point. Maybe the thing had already left. Fear stole the breath from my lungs. 
Fear that at any moment, something with sharp claws would plunge us out of our hiding spot, as easily as a crow plucking out an eyeball from someone's socket. There was a snuffling sound. The darkness was so complete that I couldn't see Adrian beside me, much less what was out there. An awful thought occurred to me. What if it could smell my blood? If that was the case, if it discovered us, we would die. We had nowhere else to hide, nowhere else to run to. I tensed and screwed my eyes shut, praying to whatever god was listening that we would survive this encounter undetected. Please, don't let it notice us. Please. Suddenly, it rushed past us. Even sandwiched inside the fissure, I felt the rush of air displaced from its passage, tugging at my hair and clothes. As though a train had just pulled away from the platform, rocks clattered to the ground. I tried very hard not to think about how large it must be. Adrian let out a shuddering sigh. Jesus Christ. I managed to raise one arm to my headlamp and turned it on. I had dropped the flashlight somewhere while we were running, though I couldn't remember where. Meager light flooded what little I could see of the cavern. Adrian's body blocked most of the opening. Do you see anything out there? No, but... He said again. Alice, I left all of our supplies out there. The first aid kit, spare flashlights, the food and candles... It's all inside my backpack and I didn't bring it with us. Okay, that's okay. Do you remember the way back? Or should we stay put and wait for someone to find us? We can look around for any handprints and footprints that we might have left behind and follow those to go back the way that we came. He started squirming his way back out of the fissure. I tried to follow and slid two inches to my left, but then I couldn't move at all. I was stuck. The fear came rushing back, and I screamed. Adrian, help me. I wanted out. I needed to get out. A film strip of images clicked through my mind. I imagined staying trapped down here, unable to move, until that thing came back and found me, or slowly dying of thirst, growing progressively weaker while my skin loosened, and my tongue swelled up and cracked. Calm down, Alice. For once, I didn't mind Adrian saying that. How could I have been so stupid? I should have known better than to move into a space at this narrow. His hand found mine and squeezed tightly. Stay calm, alright? Just get me out of here. I'm going to. I'll pull you and you're going to push you through feet at the same time. Do you understand? A wave of pathetic gratitude washed over me. I had no words to describe how glad I was that he was here with me right now. Yes, I'm ready. I couldn't help tensing up in anticipation of the pain. I told myself that it would be over soon. The fissure would widen in a few feet. Adrian abruptly let go of me. Give me your headlamp. Why, what's wrong? With his headlamp broken, my flashlight gone and all of our other sources of light abandoned near the entrance of the cave, this headlamp was our only source of light. Just give it to me. No, not until you tell me what's wrong. As if in response, a familiar shriek rang through the air, its volume steadily increasing. 
The cave sent its echoes bouncing around us. I couldn't figure out which direction the sound was coming from. I'm sorry, Alice, I really am. He reached out for my headlamp, undoing the straps with brutal efficiency. I tried to bat his hands away, but only my left arm could move freely. My right arm was pinned down next to me, my shoulder solidly wedged in the fissure. In a matter of seconds, Adrian had taken the headlamp and secured it over his helmet. I heard the click in his throat as he swallowed. I'll come back for you if I can. No, don't leave me. I reached out for him and managed to grab his wrist. He shook me off easily. Adrian, please don't leave me here. He turned away, taking the light with him. As I listened to his footsteps fading, I realized that I was going to die down here, trapped hundreds of feet below the surface of the earth. If Adrian made it out, would he tell my parents the truth of what had happened to me? Probably not. He would make something up. Something that painted him in a heroic light, and that didn't involve stealing my headlamp and abandoning me. Rage ignited and burned through my veins, chasing away the terror. I'm not going to die like this. I forced myself to relax every muscle in my body, to ignore the ever-present shrieks and the pain in my neck from holding my head sideways for so long. I recalled advice that I had once read online, from the Cavian subreddit. If you get stuck, exhale and then move. Go slow. I took as deep a breath as I could manage, the stone wall constricting my chest, and expelled all the air from my lungs at once while pushing myself sideways. I slid a few inches to my left, and then my helmet scraped against both sides of these stone walls, forcing me to a stop. I listened intently, wondering if the thing in the tunnel had heard me, but these shrieks actually seemed to be diminishing, as if it was moving further away. Sweat pulled on my back and the cut of my cheek twinged with pain. I remained completely still until I could focus again. I pushed away the terror, exhaustion, and anxiety, and concentrated only on my breathing. I exhaled, moved, took a small breath and let it out, moved again. Eventually, my left hand found a protrusion in the rock, somewhere near my hip. I wrapped my fingers around it and pulled with all my strength on the next exhale. The relentless pressure dropped away, and I could breathe freely again. By the time that I had slid out of the opening of the fissure, I had lost several layers of skin. I didn't care. I collapsed, shivering uncontrollably from relief. I had no light sources, no food, and less than a quarter of water left. I also didn't have any way to stay warm because we had left our candles and plastic bags in Adrian's backpack. I looked around myself, knowing that it was impossible for my vision to adjust to the darkness when I was underground. On the other hand, my other senses seemed to have become sharper to compensate. I could hear every rustle in the darkness every pebble knocked over, and I could feel the wind against my... Wait. Wind. I turned slowly in place, trying to pinpoint where the air current was coming from. If I followed it, I might be able to find the exit, 
and it might also lead me deeper into the cave, resulting in my certain death. But I would die if I stayed here too. Eventually, the thing would come back and it would probably find me sooner than any rescuers would. No one would know that we were missing until tomorrow night. I picked the direction that seemed most likely and I crawled blindly forward. I didn't trust myself to walk. It would be too easy to misjudge a step and fall to my death. Every single molecule of my being focused on following the air current. It was a hellish game of Marco Polo. Whenever the breeze faded away or I lost track of it, I had to stop and back up until I could feel it again. Additionally, my progress was slow and tedious because I had to keep piling up stacks of rocks to mark my way so that I wouldn't be going in circles. I also had to crawl with one arm extended to feel for any obstacles. More than once, my hand encountered a stone wall that I would have otherwise crawled straight into. After an interminable length of time, I became aware that not only was the breeze becoming stronger, but that there was some kind of light ahead of me. I squinted at it, momentarily hopeful that I had miraculously found daylight. But no, it was a beam of electric light. It stayed fixed and unmoving, focused on a distant point. I badly wanted to run to it, but I forced myself to keep moving at a snail's pace. Even though that I couldn't see the source of the light and it was still too dark to make out my surroundings clearly, I strongly suspected that I was moving through another vast cavern. God, if I ever made it out of here, I never wanted to see a cave again. Heck, I would sell off my caving gear or just burn it. The ground was strangely uneven. I kept having to clamber over huge smooth rocks that had small holes inside of them. Air rushed into them, and they seemed to move under my hands and feet. When the ground finally leveled out, I scrambled up and walked over something that squelched and crunched under my feet. The light revealed someone who was sitting against the wall of the cavern, unnaturally still. His face was pale and beaded with sweat, and it remained fixed towards whatever his headlamp was illuminating. He was alive. I could see the rise and fall of his chest as he breathed. Anger and spite quickly overrode my sympathy. As far as I was concerned, Adrian deserved to experience the same fate as me. I strode forward and yanked the headlamp off his helmet, absentmindedly wiping my hands off. It was weirdly sticky. After securing the headlamp, I tilted my head down to illuminate Adrian more clearly and screamed. A cluster of cream-colored sacks covered most of his body, each one roughly the size of my hand and shiny as well as semi-transparent. As I watched the sack bulging over his stomach shivered slightly. There was a dark worm-like shape writhing around inside of it, trying to get out. I knelt down beside him, my hands hovering uselessly over his face. Blood had dripped down every exposed inch of his skin. He had to be dead. No one could lose that much blood and still be alive. But right as I came to that conclusion, his lips trembled and shaped my name. Alice. His hand twitched and reached for me. Con. He wheezed something inaudible, 
I got up so quickly that I nearly overbalanced. Adrian couldn't seem to move. His hand remained on the ground, palm up. The fingers twitching helplessly like the legs of a dying spider. But his eyes were horribly aware, full of pain and terror. He understood what was happening to him. He could feel everything. I knew that I had to help him. But the thought of touching him, of pressing my skin against those things, filled me with revulsion. I continued backing away, unable to stop myself. Something moved around me. Something that I had assumed was simply part of the ground. It had detached itself from the darkness, uncoiling from another cluster of sacks. Ten, no, fifteen, twenty... Every single one pulsated as the things inside of them attempted to claw their way out. And next to them, surrounding them in fact, was an endless sea of bones. In some places, they stretched up to the ceiling of the cavern. Suddenly, the sacks and mounds of bones disappeared from view, and my headlamp showed me a glimpse of pale human arms, and what looked like a human head and torso but it turned a face towards me that had no eyes. A pair of mandibles protruded from where the mouth should have been, and as it rose to its full height, I saw that its torso tapered off into a flattened, many-segmented body. Each segment had a single pair of spiny legs attached, and all the legs ended in claws that clicked against the ground when it moved. It towered over me and gave an ear-piercing shriek, Sick with dread, I froze, trying to breathe as quietly as possible. It darted towards where Adrian was prone on the ground. It paused for a few seconds, swaying in place, and then slithered to a different part of the cavern. Its mouth gaped open hungrily. It knows that I'm nearby, but it can't tell exactly where. Without warning, it moved its head, viper quick, straight towards me. I forced myself to stay still even as its face came to a stop only inches before mine. My legs shook from exhaustion. Its front two limbs writhed and clutched at the empty air. I knew somehow that it had found Adrian earlier. It had paralyzed him with its bites and left him on the ground for its yet unborn children. Abruptly, it scuttled towards the entrance of the cavern, letting out another shriek before leaving. Behind me, Adrian screamed. I turned around just in time to see something erupt out of the egg of his stomach. A miniature version of the adult, roughly the length and width of my arm, it chittered loudly. It stretched its head up, seeming to bask in its freedom. And then, in the blink of an eye, it lunged towards Adrian and tore his throat open. Fresh red spurted through the air but he had lost so much already that it died down into a trickle almost instantly. More chittering echoed around the cavern. I ran for it, following the air current that had led me here. I didn't bother trying to leap over the eggs. I ran right through them, crushing their disgusting cargo beneath my feet. I only wished that I could destroy them all. As I broke open their eggs, some of them managed to scurry away from me weakly, whimpering. The passage led upwards at an increase in the steep slope. There were bones scattered here, and they seemed larger than those that I had noticed before. Scraps of rotting flesh still clung to them, 
I ignored them, all as best I could, dragging myself upwards. My throat burned with thirst, and the taste of copper flooded my mouth. I wedged my fingers and toes into any cracks that I could find, and as I climbed, I stopped hearing the hungry shrieks of those things in the eggs. But I didn't stop. I kept going even as the passage narrowed and squeezed all the air from my chest. I would rather die from falling than from being eaten alive by those things. Time passed. I don't know how much of it, how long I spent climbing in the darkness, only that it felt like years. An hour, three, I had lost all sense of time. It became measured in the aches of my muscles and the waves of thirst and hunger that shook my body. And I started to wonder if I would ever be able to leave. Maybe I would be trapped down here forever, climbing endlessly, like Sisyphus rolling his boulder up the hill for eternity. But after squirming through yet another narrow part of the passage, my foot nearly slipping on the smooth rock, I saw it. Daylight. Fresh adrenaline spurred me forward. If I had had any energy to spare, I would have cried. But all I could do at that moment was pull myself up mechanically, until I had reached the very top and there was nowhere else to go. Warm, rain-scented air greeted me, and I sprawled down on the ground, too exhausted to stay standing. I briefly saw Adrian's pale face in my mind's eye before I pushed it away. Every few seconds, I looked up to reassure myself that I was really outside. I kept thinking that the sky seemed like a flimsy mask. As if at any moment, something would rip it away to reveal a stone face underneath. The opening to the cave needs to be sealed. Better yet, we should destroy everything in it. I've been thinking about it lately. There were 18 eggs attached to Adrian or lying in the ground next to him, and roughly 20 or so guarded by that abomination. I only crushed a handful of them when I ran away. Let's say I managed to get 3 or 5. That's about 33 eggs. But I didn't even see the entire cavern. Some centipede species can lay up to 60 eggs at a time. How many years has it been laying eggs? And how many of those eggs have hatched? I don't know, but I'm sure of one thing. They've eaten almost everything down there. And it's only a matter of time before they run out of food completely. And when they do, I don't think that they're just going to quietly starve away. No, they're going to seek out more food. And there's only one direction they can go towards in order to do that. Up. A guy delivers pizza to my house every night. I didn't order anything. Written by The Scarecast. Buying your first house is one of the biggest decisions a person has to make. And while it turns into a horror story to a lot of people, it usually includes nightmarish contracts, termites, or infiltrations. But not mine. My horror story is unlike anything you've ever heard. It started with me deciding that I was done throwing money away on rent. I had some savings and I was ready to be a homeowner. No tiny apartment, no roommates. 
Just a nice, quiet place to relax after working crazy hours almost daily. My goal was to live close to work, so I started driving around that neighborhood. Whenever I saw a for sale sign, I browsed the details on my phone, and I contacted the realtor, or at least I would if those places were affordable. Houses closer to work were insanely expensive, so I started driving randomly and ended up finding a quaint neighborhood where I had never been before. While the houses were still very pricey, like everything in this city, I had a feeling that I could find something interesting there. And I did. After driving around for a couple of hours, I saw a realtor was hanging the for sale sign in front of a house that seemed pretty nice. While it was small for a family, it was the perfect size for a single guy like me. I stopped and started asking all sorts of questions, and he replied with a big smile. You're so lucky, the house isn't even listed yet, so you're the first to visit. I'm sure that you'll love it, Mr. Daniels. Everything is in great shape. Come inside, let me show you. The house was indeed in great shape, both inside and outside. Man needed minor repairs, but it was stuff like fixing two steps on the stairs or getting a new fence for the backyard. And all the important pieces of the house seemed perfect. And you won't believe the price. The realtor was almost more excited than me, as he announced how incredibly cheap the place was. A small fraction of the price that I had expected, and certainly something that I could afford. Why is the price so good? I asked, trying to hold back my excitement. Something had to be wrong, right? The owners need quick money to buy a bigger one, he replied. It seemed reasonable, but still. They could list it for twice the price and it would still be cheap, I remarked. When Lady Luck comes to you, you just accept it, he replied. Not smiling for the first time since our conversation had started. His face then lightened up. I mean, if you really want to pay twice, I won't stop you. Like every realtor, he was pushy and persuasive, but in a friendly way. He assured me that if I didn't make my decision immediately, other people would swarm him to buy it the very next day when it was listed, and the competition would make the price go up. Pressing me like that worked. So, by the time that I went to bed that day, I was the owner of a new house. My job as an accountant is demanding, so I didn't have a lot of a chance to enjoy my new place at first, or notice that something strange was going on. Then came Friday night, the first time of a typical week that I could actually relax. Instead of coming home late and immediately going to bed, I decided to enjoy not having to get up early the next day. That night, I took a long shower, had a real meal for a change, and sat on the couch to watch a movie. At exactly midnight, a car stopped in front of my house. I briefly thought that it was kind of odd since the street had been incredibly quiet by night, but then I told myself that it was just one of my neighbors. Except that I heard steps approaching my door, and the distinct noise of an object being left on the porch. It sounded like a pizza box. I hadn't ordered anything and wasn't expecting any deliveries. I was so weirded out by the strange incident that it took me a few seconds before I decided to go check it out. And both to my surprise and relief, 
there was nothing on the porch. A car I didn't recognize was leaving in the distance, but whatever it had dropped off was gone. I looked all around, but I didn't find anything out of the ordinary. No packages, no food. Not even the smell of food. Intrigued, I went back inside and I finished my movie. However, by the time that I woke up the following day, whatever happened had entirely left my mind. It was Saturday and I had to take a trip to my parents' place and get some furniture that they wanted me to have. The drive was just a few hours so I could make it back the same day. But they insisted that I stay at least for one night and then that I had lunch with them and why not dinner. I ended up returning no sooner than 11pm on Sunday night. I closed the door behind me, annoyed that it was too late for making noise and disturbing the neighbors so I would have to use tomorrow one of my few days off to unload the furniture. As soon as I took a look at the clock, I realized it was 12am sharp. Once again, the car stops in front of my house. This time, I'm not completely unprepared, and I'm already standing next to the door. I can finally solve this mystery with something mundane and move on, I think. As I unlock the door, I hear the sound of the object being dropped again. But when I open the door and see what's outside, two seconds later, nothing's there. A man is running back to the car and it's too dark for me to see his face, so I yell at him, but he ignores me. He's little more than a silhouette. I think he's wearing a cap and that his height is average, and that's all I can make from seeing him for a fraction of a second. The porch is completely empty and this time, it feels incredibly ominous. Whatever was there it disappeared in literally one second. So I decided that for the next day, I'm going to wait for him outside. I won't miss it this time. I spend Monday my day off making minor repairs around the house, installing new furniture and cutting the grass, stuff like that. I try to make some sense of the situation. Could it be a prank by one or more of the neighborhood kids to mess with the newcomer? But it would be a lot of work to consistently execute the prank exactly when my clock hit midnight. Besides, how do they make whatever they drop in front of my house disappear? And it all happened so quickly and quietly. I'm sure some teenagers pranking their new neighbor would be loudly giggling or being loud somehow. I spent the whole day thinking about the moment that I could confront the delivery guy. I didn't want to be aggressive to the guy, only ask him what the heck is going on to demand that he stopped. It was 11pm when I sat very quietly on the porch. And I spent this last hour kind of rehearsing what I would say. Again, it's 12am sharp, when the car pulls up in front of my house. I barely breathe in expectation. I know the man can see me, and I hope that I don't look either menacing or like a fool. I just want him to understand that whatever he's doing is creepy and that he can't do it anymore. For a few seconds, we fight a mental battle, or at least that's how it felt to me. Like I had cornered the guy and he didn't know what to do. I'm more intrigued than scared, but I'm not very strong so the idea of having to physically fight makes me sweat bullets. This time, the strange visitor doesn't even leave the car. He just drives away after a few seconds of hesitation. 
His car is a very common model and has no distinguishing features. I don't know his face. I have no way of finding out who he is, and this night has made it very clear that he won't make it easy for me. So, I decided to talk to the neighbors. The neighbors are dismissive to say the least. I asked if they had been ordering something near midnight, but all of them answered no. My last hope of having a normal explanation was that somehow the guy was delivering something to the wrong house, but it was clear that that wasn't the case. I then asked if they heard a car pulling up every day at midnight and the answer baffled me. They didn't. Not a single one of them heard a relatively loud car entering our quiet street. Come to think about it, I didn't hear the car until it started leaving either. It was clear that they thought I was crazy. Look man, if you think I'm crazy, you just come over and wait for it with me, I told them, getting mixed reactions of scoffs and wariness. Two of my neighbors decided to come over for a whole week, but when other people were around, the car simply didn't show up. They even made snarky comments or openly made fun of me every night. I almost started to believe that I was in fact going crazy. But why of all things was I hallucinating with non-existent pizza and a fleeing car? As the older neighbor left on the seventh day, he tapped my shoulder and said, Hey, you wouldn't be the first deranged person to live here. Just make sure to take your meds. With this ominous warning, I was left with no choice but to completely forget it and not let it bother me. I still heard the car and the soft thump of the pizza box every night, but I successfully ignored it for over a week. Maybe I am crazy after all, but my delusion is a minor thing that just goes away on its own after less than a minute, so it's not that bad. Everything was manageable until the day that the delivery guy crossed the line. I went to bed earlier that day because the next day I'd have an important meeting and it was barely past 9 when I turned off the lights and fell asleep right away. But then, in the middle of the night, the terrifying sound of my front door creaking open woke me up abruptly and I could hear steps ascending the stairs. I frantically look around the bedroom, trying to find something to protect myself with. At first, I assume the intruder is a burglar. But when I noticed that it's 12.05am, there was only one person that this could be. Now, one thing is to do this creepy thing while I'm just relaxing downstairs and I can handle that. But breaking into my house and disturbing my sleep, and during the busiest season of the year, is not something that I will dismiss as a trivial incident. I dash to these stairs quicker than I ever have due to the adrenaline. But by the time that I had reached the bottom... No one else was there anymore. The door was left wide open and the car was starting to flee. No, this time he's not getting away with it. I grab the keys of my car and start chasing the guy. I would probably have more regard for my own safety if I hadn't been abruptly awakened. But at that moment, I only had one thing on my mind. Finding out who this guy was. I didn't care that I was still in pajamas and wearing slippers despite the cold outside or even that I had a big day of work ahead of me. This had become creepy and personal, and I just wanted to find out why. The car was not going so fast, so I quickly close in. I try to see the driver's face on his rearview mirror, 
But despite his open windows, uh, I can't see anything. It's like he has no reflection. He makes a few random turns on blocks that I don't know, but I manage to keep tailing him. When I think that the guy is cornered, he takes a turn on the street. I didn't notice that it was there, and it took me a moment to realize what had happened, but I wouldn't allow myself to lose him. The street he entered is a narrow one, and it ends on a huge abandoned lot, all surrounded by tall wire fences. I smiled as I realized that he cornered himself and slowed down, but then I noticed that he is not slowing down. As I start yelling that I don't want to hurt him, he throws his car against the fence. I close my eyes and scream in panic, terrified that I have led the guy to either seriously injuring himself or worse. But the sound of the crash never comes. Instead, the fence is intact, and the car is nowhere to be seen. My mind starts processing the images that I saw right before closing my eyes and, unbelievable as it is, I am 100% sure that the guy and his car went through the fence like they weren't physical. It completely disappeared as soon as it crossed to the other side. I don't know which was the worst part. The fact that I saw a whole car behaving like a ghost, or the fact that I didn't hit the brakes soon enough, and then my car crashed against the fence. The first one was the only thing on my mind, so I barely noticed what had happened to me until the police found me several minutes later. After making sure that I wasn't severely hurt and assuring me that the damages to my car didn't seem to be major, the policeman gave me a huge fine. I tried to explain what I was doing there in pajamas and slippers, but they watched me with pity and concern on their faces when I talked about a home invader that could phase through fences. You're having a rough night, pal. Let us give you a ride home and please rest and take your meds properly, okay? The older and more fatherly policeman put his hand on my shoulder. If you still think you saw a ghost car by tomorrow... Please, give us a call and we'll do everything to help you. Defeated, I did my best to sleep and focus on working the next day. My body was sore, but it was nothing compared to the terror that I felt about the disappearing car. On the very next day, I bought an expensive, high-quality security camera for my front door. I wanted to make sure to catch the intruder's face with detail to finally identify him and put an end to this madness. Thinking back, I should have done that from the beginning, but despite being unsettled by it, I guess I wasn't taking the issue that seriously before he broke into my house. I was able to see him that same night, and I wish that I hadn't. He approached the door with incredible speed, his joints making nearly inhuman movements. He was indeed holding a pizza box. When he approached my door and leaned to leave the box, I could see him closely. His face was nearly featureless. The cap covered it almost completely, but with that cam, I could perfectly see that he didn't have a mouth like he was wearing a balaclava mask made of skin over his own skin. I was terrified by it, and I didn't want to chase that thing again. But there was a piece of useful information. His shirt had the logo of a pizza place. Pizza Mike's. I tried calling immediately, but they were already closed for the day. I barely slept that night and spent the whole day feeling a horrible uneasiness. 
like I had stumbled onto something that I shouldn't. By the time that I left work, I decided to go to Pizza Mike's and talk to every employee until the doorbell video made sense. The place wasn't far from my house. It looked completely average and didn't have a lot of customers at the time. I'm being harassed by one of your delivery guys. I told the girl behind the counter. He comes to my house every day at midnight. Sorry, sir. Can you please give me your address so I can check? I complied and she typed it on the computer. We haven't delivered to this place in years, sir. But you have before, I asked. Look, I have a video of the guy wearing a shirt with your logo. Yeah, I can see at least two weekly orders from 2006 to 2015, she replied. I'm not sure I can help you. Can I please see your manager? The manager's face was white and shocked as he asked me to follow him to his office. We entered the small room and he asked me to confirm my address. And you said you have a video of it. I confirmed and handed him my phone after watching it. His lips were trembling, and he was doing his best not to cry. The previous owner of that house was a regular here. He explained with a shaken voice. She loved our pepperoni and pineapple pizza. Oh, I muttered, waiting for the rest of the story. That day, there was a new hire in the kitchen, and we messed up her order. She was furious more than it would be reasonable. She remarked that she was incredibly hungry and that we ruined her night. Since she was a loyal client, we assured her that we would send the right pizza ASAP and that the next one would be free too. But apparently it wasn't enough. Did you get her pizza? I asked. Yeah, of course, but it was a busy night and we only had one person delivering at the time so she had to wait two or three more hours. Her pizza only arrived around midnight, and when it did, she lashed out at the delivery guy insulting him and us. She screamed like someone possessed by a demon. He was a sweet boy named Rashawn. He had some mental issues, but he was very diligent and everyone liked him. His job here was his life, and he was always ready to defend a pizza Mike's like one would defend their mother. So I assume he fought back. He sure did. The manager gave a deep, sad sigh. Eventually, he apologized and said that he had to go and make some more deliveries. But she wasn't done being angry. So she took her car and chased him. I had a vague idea of how this would end. Rashawn was nervous and made a wrong turn, so he ended up crashing against the fence on that empty lot on Washington Street. But she still wasn't done being angry. So she shot him four times. He died, of course. I was shocked. She somehow was able to drive back home, and apparently she didn't like the neighbors either. Because she shot two more people before realizing what she had done and ending herself. It was supposed to cause a commotion. But a relative of hers owns the local newspaper, so it was mostly covered up. We only know what happened because Rashad had butt-dialed us, and we could hear everything. Why did she do this to the neighbors? Just because? I asked. Apparently, she couldn't stand loud sounds, and they spent many nights outside playing music. After it, she entered her house, leaving the door wide open, and blasted her own head. It was bad. 
A lot of curious or worried people saw her body before the police showed up. By the end of our conversation, we were both sure that I was reliving over and over the last day of Rashawn's life. Probably the fact that someone was living in that house again and had made his spirit restless. I started planning to call the priest, sell the house that I'd barely bought and then move far away. But the very next day, Rashawn stopped coming, and he never showed up again. I loved the house, so I eventually started to forget about it at all, and told myself that tragedies have happened everywhere at some point in the past, and that holding on to it would make my life unnecessarily more complicated. I pray for Rashawn's soul and even for the deranged lady, and I'm immensely grateful to whatever made it stop. Other than that, I don't think about it anymore. It was only when I found out about the manager's unexpected passing from unknown causes that I remembered one of the things that he told me. The new hire in the kitchen that day was me. There is something buried beneath Africa. I don't think it's of this earth. Written by Drunk Swordsman. My name is Joshua. I'm an infantryman with a private military outfit that I cannot name. We are currently deployed on security detail in a war-torn corner of Africa. Our mission has gone horribly, horribly wrong, and I don't think we're fighting insurgents or terrorists anymore. Our entire force will be moving out soon. I'm not sure that we'll be coming back. Whatever we've come across here, it's not natural. It's not of this earth. And it wants us all dead. I was a part of the team that found it a week ago. It was supposed to be just a routine patrol. Our objective was to make sure there was no enemy movement in the vicinity of our base. And no threat to the one local settlement in the area. It was a hot, dry day. The sun beat down mercilessly, and the scrub-covered plains that we moved through gave no protection against the elements, not even a single tree to throw a little shade. I was sweating horribly, my head lowered to shield my eyes against the glare of the sun. Because of this, I barely managed to stop in time to avoid colliding with Harris, my squad mate. He had been in position in front of me, but had stopped without warning. What's going on, man? I asked, walking around him. What's the holdup? Harris was motionless, his face screwed up in confusion. Uh, something wrong with my radio, Josh, he answered at last. I leaned in closer and immediately heard what he meant. His radio was giving off strange squawking sounds, mixed with a high-pitched buzzing. What's the delay? came a yell from up ahead. Our superior, Sergeant Wright. I cursed inwardly. Wright was a hard son of a gun, and I didn't want him thinking that we were slacking. Uh, equipment malfunction, sir. I answered quickly. Radio's acting up. Sergeant Wright walked over to us. The rest of the patrol, some five men, cast annoyed glances at us. And every minute that we spent out here in the heat was torture. And to them, me and Harris were only prolonging their suffering. 
What's wrong with it? Asked Wright. Uh, some kind of interference, sir, answered Harris, experimenting with the various switches on the receiver. I don't know if... The whole patrol cursed and covered their ears as every single radio suddenly erupted in a deafening chorus of shrill squawks and whistles. After several seconds, the deluge of sound stopped just as suddenly as it began. What the heck was that? I asked, my ears ringing. Sergeant Wright didn't answer, instead activating his own radio. Command, can you read me? Over, he said, testing the connection. There were a few seconds of silence, and then the receiver chirped to life. This is command, over. We have equipment malfunction here, some sort of radio interference. Anything of that sort of base, over. Something just happened to us as well, Sergeant. All our systems went haywire for several seconds, and then straight back to normal. Continue patrol, just be careful. Report any activity immediately, over. The line went dead. Sergeant Wright brandished his rifle. You heard the order, man. Move out, eyes sharp. We set out again. The sun still beat down, but we were no longer lethargic from the heat. Adrenaline had purged that weakness from our minds. All eyes were up, scanning our surroundings intently. After half an hour of walking, we spotted something in the distance. A strange bump in the terrain that Harris brought his binoculars up, scanning at it intently. What is it, Harris? I asked. I thought it was all planes out here. It is, he said, lowering the binoculars. Or at least it was supposed to be. There's some sort of low hillock there, though. We pushed on, cautious and alert. Eventually, we reached the strange bump. It wasn't high, only a few meters tall, but it was wide, stretching out far on both sides of us. We climbed to its top and stopped in awe. Before us was a massive chasm, a circular hole into the ground, almost 200 feet across. Peering down, all I could see was darkness, the bottom nowhere in sight. A cold, clear draught hit me in the face. What is this? mumbled one of the soldiers. This isn't supposed to exist. Sergeant Wright unslung his pack, hauling out a large field map. He unfolded it and scanned across it, locating our position. His face screwed up in confusion. Whatever this is, it isn't on the map, he said at last. You're right. It isn't supposed to be here at all. Sergeant, look said Harris. His voice had suddenly become very small and quiet. His eyes were distant. I followed his gaze. The sky was full of birds. Where they had come from so quickly, I didn't know. The flocks wheeled and swelled in strange patterns like nothing that I had ever seen. As I watched, one bird suddenly stopped flapping its wings and streaked down. This was no controlled, a graceful dive. It felt like a stone, cartwheeling and spinning uncontrollably, cawing and shrieking. It plummeted into the darkness of the pit, and it was gone. Another followed, and then another, and more joined in. In less than a minute, 
The air in front of us was filled with falling bodies, all stone still as they fell down into the darkness of the chasm. They're... they're killing themselves, whispered one of the soldiers. They're freaking killing themselves, man. We returned straight to base. Sergeant Wright immediately reported the chasm, of course. The confusion only grew after that. Not only was the hole not on our maps, it also didn't appear on any satellite images of the area, and no previous patrol had noticed it. It was as if it had just appeared out of thin air in these several seconds all of our electronics went down. Theories flared up like fire. Was it an insurgent base? Had they hidden it somehow? It seemed like the most logical explanation, far-fetched though it was. The chasm quickly became known as 225199, after its grid coordinates. By the time Wright had finished his report to command, night was quickly approaching, and there was little time to formulate a response. As the sun fell, staining the plains orange and red, two troop carriers departed our base. Twenty men were dispatched to guard 225199 until the next morning. On top of that, it was surrounded by motion-activated tripwire. If anything moved around it, we would know. I spent the evening discussing our findings with Harris in our tent. He was just as dumbfounded by the situation as I was. How the heck could someone keep a place like that secret? He asked me disassembled rifle in his lab. Where would the locals get that kind of technology? I don't know, man, I answered, idly lighting a cigarette. Whatever it is, we'll find out tomorrow. Someone will probably get sent down there to recon, and then we'll know. What about those birds? That was weird. Harris shrugged his shoulders. Your guess is as good as mine. Maybe there's some vapors coming out of it that paralyzed or confused them. I guess, I answered warily. Anyway, continued Harris, at least something interesting is happening. It's been too long since. The flap to our tent flew open, and we jumped to attention as Sergeant Wright swept in. Sergeant, what? I began. Get your gear on now, soldiers. We're moving out. Move. He turned on his heel, running out of the tent immediately. We both sprung into action, putting on our equipment and shouldering ready packs. As we ran out into the night, we were immediately surrounded by bustling, anxious activity. The whole base was on its feet, men and women running around, preparing equipment and vehicles. What's happening? I yelled at Harris. I don't know, man, he answered but I don't like it. We quickly joined the arrest of our unit, the last to do so. Sergeant Wright gave us a withering look before clearing his throat and addressing the whole squad. Twelve minutes ago, the proximity sensors around 225199 went off. All of them, around the entire circumference at the same time. The unit dispatched to guard it reported movement before their radios went dead. Wright was silent for several seconds, and in the dark, I was almost certain he was trembling. 
What had he heard in his briefing that can make him react like this? Our orders are to move in, seek here the location, and find our missing comrades. Be on high alert. We're not sure what we're dealing with out there. Our unit was ushered onto the bed of a truck, and we quickly drove out into the night. And we weren't the only ones. Our vehicle was only one of dozens. Hundreds of men were being mobilized. It took little time to reach 225199. As the truck rolled to a halt, we jumped off of its bed, weapons sawed high, panning the night. The hillock surrounding the abyss loomed above us in the darkness. We moved out. Our progress slowed by both low visibility and our own wariness. Every shadow, every swaying scrub hedge seemed to be hiding the movement of an enemy. Something pale in front of me caught my eye. My weapon came up, and I mumbled into the radio. I have something. I approached the thing slowly. At first, I couldn't make out any details. But as I moved forward, the shape resolved. A man, lying on the ground. He was naked, stripped of all clothes and equipment. He wasn't moving. I rushed forward to him. I need a medic at my location immediately. I cried into the radio, my heart hammering. Behind, I could hear footsteps as the rest of my unit closed in, covering me. I knelt down at the prone figure. Still, he didn't move. The man was lying face down and I reached under him to roll him over. As I shifted his body, my heart plummeted. It was cold, too cold. No living being could ever be this cold. Command, I have a... My voice trailed off. The way the body had moved as I turned it over, the way that it had felt. It had been strange. I couldn't place my finger on why. With a rush of disgust and horror, I realized why. The body was horribly soft, pliant. The limbs bending at grotesque angles as if made of rubber. The body had no bones. I bent over and rushed down to the ground. A hand gripped my shoulder, and the face of Sergeant Wright appeared next to me. Figures came out of the dark, medics and soldiers. Come with me, Private, said Wright quietly, putting his arm around my shoulders. There's nothing that you can do here. I, I don't, I began, but a fresh bout of nausea silenced my objections. Many strong arms grabbed me and led me away. I don't remember the journey back to the base. Harris told me that only a few trucks returned. Most of these soldiers stayed behind, scouring the land for the rest of the missing unit. They never found them. In the morning, Sergeant Wright informed me that I was to stay on base that day. The rest of my unit would be going to the local village to ask them for potential information on the attackers from last night. I didn't complain. The horrible memory of that morbidly soft, pliant body had seared itself into my mind. I needed time to recover. But as the day wore on, I couldn't stop thinking about the previous night and the corpse that I had found. What could possibly do something like that to a man? 
how could his bones be removed from his body? I had seen no obvious injury that might have explained such a hideous disfigurement. Had I simply missed it in the dark? My morbid thinking was finally interrupted as my unit returned. I could immediately see that something was wrong. Where usually they would be playfully taunting each other or discussing the situation on base, they were quiet and brooding. Harris sat down in his cot opposite me. He was pale, his eyes darting and furtive. Harris, what's wrong? I asked, confused. It's, it's nothing, Josh, he answered quietly. Did something happen in the village? Are the locals all right? Oh, they're fine. They didn't tell us what happened at 225199. Then what's wrong? Why is everyone acting like this? Harris looked up at me, his eyes filled with an uncertain, unknowable terror. A chill ran down my back. They know something, man, but they wouldn't tell us. Even when Wright lost his temper and threatened them, kept saying that they didn't do it. Then what? That's not all they said, Josh. We talked to the young ones first, of course. You know how the locals are. The older they are, the more they hate us. No one wanted to talk to us. They just would look down and say that they didn't know anything. We were about to leave, but then, some old crone started shouting. She had kept silent the whole time, but she finally opened up. What did she say? I asked. Without realizing it, I had dropped my voice to a whisper. She said that her people were innocent, that something else had taken our men. She called it something strange, older than light. She warned that we should forget about them and pray that we won't be next. This was five days ago. Today, we finally received orders. The entire base is moving out. The decision was made way up in the chain of command. Someone in charge seems to think that the chasm is home to a terrorist cell, and we are being sent to flush them out. I don't think any one of us here actually believes that. The people giving the orders haven't seen what we've seen. We've surrounded the chasm from all sides. Our advance covered by armored vehicles and hovering helicopters with weapons trained in the abyss. Military engineers have moved in. They've constructed a massive pulley system that will lower dozens of men at a time into the darkness on a huge platform. An hour ago, we were supposed to begin descending. All units were standing ready, awaiting their turn. The mood was grim. Harris held a well-worn crucifix in his fist and he mumbled prayers. The air around us thrummed with the spinning rotors of attack helicopters. They were once again covering the abbeys, all weapons ready. From up there, they had a commanding view of the area and could even peer down into the darkness. I didn't see the movement things went to crap. Harris suddenly cursed, pointing upwards at the sky his face pale. What the heck? What the heck? I followed his gaze. High above us, the hovering helicopters swayed madly, as if their pilots were intoxicated. The sergeants were screaming into the radios, requesting information, orders, anything. Suddenly, the aircraft lurched forward, 
drawn like marionettes by an insane puppet master. They swung towards the dark chasm. One by one, the pilots stalled their rotors and plummeted gracelessly down into the blackness. Whatever it is we found out here, it's not natural. It's not of this earth. We cannot fight it or send it back to wherever it came from. I want you to pray. Pray for our missing comrades. Pray for the pilots that we've lost. Pray for us as we journey down to where they fell. But most importantly, pray that whatever dwells in that dark chasm doesn't come out. Pray that you're not next. I'm a wilderness guide, and I used to hand out made-up lists of rules as a promotional stunt. Something horrible happened. Written by Ozark Writer. Back when other folks were becoming robber barons, or at least homesteading good farmland, my people didn't have the good sense to do anything that would set their descendants, namely me up for an easy life. Instead, they decided to homestead in the current river valley. May no one getting rich down here. Over the generations, my family gathered up more and more cheap land, and then they left it all to me. If chert rocks were valuable well, I would have me a gosh dang fortune. I've inherited 500 acres of rocks, ridgeland, and woods along with enough river frontage to flood at inconvenient times. The timber that covers most of the place might be worth something, but good luck getting it out once you've cut it. There ain't no easy way to get logs out of here other than float them down the river. But nowadays, there ain't sawmills on the river like there used to be. It's a lot of land, but it's not land that's going to generate an easy income. I probably would have sold the whole place years ago, but it won't fetch that much, and then I would have to find somewhere else to live. I'm kind of stuck here. Fortunately, a few years back, I finally figured out a way to make a little bit of money from the place. I became a wilderness guide. People from the city pay me a pretty penny to show them around my little patch of Ozark wilderness. At first, I offered my services for hunting and fishing, and I did okay with that. Then I found some web forums where people post about the monsters and cryptids that they think exist out here in the hills, and I recognized an opportunity when I saw one. I started advertising my services to guide people searching for Bigfoot and other such baloney, and those nuts ate it up. And then I found another internet forum where people love reading rule stories, where there's these strange rules that folks have to follow to avoid being eaten by the boogeyman or something. I put two and two together and started advertising crypto monster tours of the Ozarks, where you had to promise to follow my very specific rules before I would take your money and take you around my place hunting for whatever the heck it is you think lives out here. I've tripled my prices and I still have as much business as I can stand. Are my clients idiots? Yes, absolutely. Or at least I used to think that they were idiots. 
I figured that anyone willing to pay me 1200 bucks a night to hike around in the woods, searching for make-believe critters, had something wrong with them. But I never let that bother me. I rationalized that I was more of an entertainer than a con artist. I was just showing people the good time. Letting them spend a few hours dreaming that there is something more to this world than we can see in our day-to-day -day life. Heck, I had almost convinced myself that I was doing the Lord's work or something. And then that giant blue man ate that guy named Hunter. Now, I'm not sure that I want to think about what kind of man I am. It was Hunter's wife, Ainsley, that had booked the trip. She called me and left a message saying that she was hoping to give her husband a genuine and dangerous supernatural experience for their 10th wedding anniversary. I called her back with my usual spiel about how these hills are mighty spooky and you never do know what you're going to get when you's out in the woods. But so long as you follow my rules, you'll want to be okay. Ainsley was really into the rules from the start in a capital R sort of way like they were the gospel or something. How do we get the rules? She had asked me on the phone. Do you hand them out when we check in or can you email them to us so we can study them in advance? I have them written out on some note cards that I've laminated, I told her. That way they can stand up to the elements while you're out here. And you ones will always have them with you to consult in a dangerous situation. Before I could even get to the bit where, for an extra charge, she could keep the rule cards as a commemorative souvenir, Ainsley asked me, Can you just email me the rules? I'll share them with Hunter and then he and I will commit them to memory. Well, uh, I guess I could do that if, I stammered. On the one hand, I wasn't a big fan of documenting my communications with prospective clients in digital form because that sort of trail can lead to trouble. On the other hand, I was a huge fan of selling clients souvenir note cards filled with inane rules for 50 bucks a pop. Since both hands were against me emailing her the rules, I tried to think of a reason to not send her anything. Before I could think of an excuse, Ainsley came up with a great reason for me to do as she had asked. I'm sure that you have very good reasons for the way you usually communicate your rules to investigators like us, she said. So I would of course be happy to pay you to deviate from your normal process and email the rules to me. You would? Yes, of course I would. And I would also agree to absolve you from any and all liability arising from the change in your preferred paranormal protocols. I suppose that I could make an exception if, in fact, I would pay you for an entire extra guest if you were to email me the rules in advance, and then never share them or even mention them to Hunter once we get there. I can do that, I answered, trying to keep the eagerness out of my voice. It's just that Hunter wants the illusion of being an explorer and figuring these things out on his own, she explained. As if I cared why she wanted to pay me an extra 1200 bucks to not hand them some lame laminated cards when they arrived. I understand, I told her. I look forward to you and Hunter joining us, and if I may, I would like to be the first to wish you a happy anniversary. Oh, thank you very much, she said.
Now, I have my credit card right here. Can I go ahead and pay the entire amount in advance? Yes, ma'am, I answered. Given how well Ainsley was compensating me for them, I tried to make my rules look nice before emailing them to her. I typed them up in a fancy-looking document with Current River Cryptid Encounters Rules for Surviving the Night at the top of the page. Then I cribbed off one of my many handwritten note cards and typed the rules into the document. I even tried to punch them up a little bit while I was at it. Rule 1 was the only one that I cared about enforcing. Do what your guide tells you to do immediately. Hesitation and stupid questions can be fatal. It wasn't a lie, because back when I was just doing hunting trips, I often came close to killing a client for being an idiot. Ever since then, I had the threat of supernatural retribution on my side. Clients have been a whole heap better about hopping to when I give them an order. The rest of the rules were things that I had come up with for dramatic effect or personal amusement. Rule 7. Do not bring peanuts, peanut butter, or anything containing peanuts or peanut butter with you. It existed because I have an allergy and figured that if I could need a PB&J sandwich for a snack, then no one else should either. Rule 9. Stay out of the river after sundown. In fact, don't even look at the river after sundown. It just sounded ominous to me. While rule 13, don't throw rocks at it, whatever it is, it made me laugh. Once I had typed up all the rules into a document, I had printed it into a PDF protected with a password that Ainsley had asked me to use. I clicked to send on the email, and Ainsley replied within three minutes. Thank you so much. Please remember... Don't say anything to my husband about these rules. He's very excited about pretending to learn about your cryptids. And if you mention anything about these rules, it will shatter the illusion. I typed, No problem, happy to help any way I can, in response. I could already tell that those two were going to be a handful. Ainsley scheduled their overnight supernatural wilderness encounter in the middle of October right about when fall starts to arrive around here. They showed up that afternoon in a tricked-out Porsche SUV. I had no idea that Porsche even made SUVs, until theirs crept up my rutted driveway. Hunter was driving about three miles per hour, weaving to and fro trying to avoid the holes, and as I could see through the tinted windows, yelling at his wife. I came down from my porch to meet them in the driveway, I don't know what the heck you're thinking. Hunter was screaming as he opened his door and slid off of a seat covered in the fanciest looking leather I had ever seen. From the other side of the vehicle, Ainsley gave me a pained expression and mouthed, remember, as she got out. Both of them were attractive, I guess, although their angular look was better suited for a TV studio than the hills. She was tall and rail thin, with wispy blonde hair flying up from underneath a neon green stocking hat. He was muscular in a way that I could tell came from a weight room rather than physical labor, with brown hair combed over the bald spot developing on the top of his head. 
Both of them wore tight-fitting and obviously new flannel shirts. Designer jeans with logos that I didn't recognize. Puffy vests that probably contained real goose down. And pristine hiking boots. I began my usual welcome speech. Howdy, folks, I said. I hope you're ready for her. Oh, we're ready to experience nature. Ansley chimed in as her husband scouted her. And the clean mountain air will do us some good. Well, actually, these are technically hills, not mountains, I began. But I stopped when I saw Ansley staring at me with a pleading expression, and Hunter glaring at me with contempt. I adjusted my approach. But topographical definitions aren't important. What is important is what we do, indeed. We have some really clean air for you to breathe while we're out here in nature tonight. Let's just get this over with, Hunter said. He went back to the SUV and began to rummage through it. Well, sounds good to me, I said. I'll go get my gear from the house. Before I could head back inside to get a jacket and my pack, Ainsley grabbed my wrist. Remember, she whispered, not a word about those rules. I think he's grumpy because he's worried you'll forget about our special arrangement. In fact, it would probably be best if you didn't mention the supernatural at all. You know, let him discover it for himself. I wanted to argue with her, because who was she to tell me how to put on my own show? But then I remembered that she was the one who had paid me nearly $4,000 for a single night camping in the woods. So I shrugged. Sure thing, I said. If that's what you two want, that's fine with me. She gave my wrist a friendly squeeze. Thanks, she said before joining Hunter to wrangle their gear out from the back of their fancy vehicle as I went into my house. I watched through my front window as they bickered and, judging from their gestures, threatened one another with bodily harm. I took a deep breath and tried to center myself, like I had learned from that meditation app that I've been using. I knew that it was going to be a long night. I just hoped that I wouldn't be a witness to a murderer. The thoughts of murder prompted me to hurry back out there before those two came to blows. I shrugged into my own well-worn backpack, grabbed the 3006 rifle that I carried for show, and strapped on both my 9mm pistol, also for show, and my genuinely handy hunting knife. It was time to take Connor and Ainsley out into the woods to camp for the night. I had the feeling that I was going to earn every nickel that I was getting paid for the adventure. The hike was easy but exasperating. Hunter whined about how the hills were too steep. The trees with their gorgeous fall leaves beginning to turn color made the trail too dark. And the sounds of nature around us were too near at hand. Once we got to the gravel bar I always use as a campsite for my wilderness excursions, he kicked the rocks like a petulant child as I set up camp. Being a customer-oriented kind of guy... I put the two-person tent over where the gravel gives way to nice soft sand and put my own one-man tent as far away from theirs as I could. I figured that sleeping on a few rocks would be worth it to be as far away from those two as possible. Meanwhile, Hunter progressed from kicking rocks to chucking them into the river. Ainsley came over to me as I was finishing with my tent. Is that going to be too dangerous? She asked me in a hushed voice, 
nodding towards her husband. At that moment, he was trying to hit a huge sycamore tree on the opposite bank, but missing wildly. Well, I was planning on catching some fish for dinner tonight, so he is risking scaring off our dinner. It's more than that, she whispered with a tone of urgency. He's violating Rule 13. What kind of monster is attracted to rock throwing? It seemed like her eyes had an enthusiastic glow to them. But maybe it was just the sun beginning to sink low towards the ridgeline in the west. I tried to alleviate her anxiety over her husband being attacked by a haunt without dispelling the illusion of a supernatural danger. Hmm, well, lots of them are attracted to the sound of rocks being thrown. They're curious, you know. I improvised. He'll probably survive, but I'll have to go and tell him to stop. Ansley stepped so close to me that I could feel her breath on my face. I just want you to know, she said, that I won't hold you accountable if something unfortunate happens to him because of his rule-breaking. This was shaping up to be the weirdest wilderness supernatural encounter that I had ever led. Well, uh, thanks. I'll try to keep him safe just the same. I told her. Ainsley didn't look as pleased with that declaration as I had expected she would be. Then I went over to where Hunter was, busy searching for the perfect stone to chalk. Alrighty, I told him. I'm going to need you to stop scaring the fish. I got the tents up so you can get settled into yours while I'll go catch us some dinner. There's no way we're both going to fit in there, he said. Well, sure, it's going to be a little friendly, I told him. But you two are married, right? So it's okay to be a little friendly. I won't make the best of it. Ainsley said from behind me. Fine. Hunter said in a tone that sounded far from fine. What did you say about dinner? I said it's time to catch it. I have a spare rod and reel if you want to fish too. Hunter snorted. For what I'm sure my idiot wife is paying you, you're the one that's going to catch the fish. Well, that's fine, I told him. Only I meant it. Last thing I wanted was that idiot lodging a barbs and metal hook into my face, trying to cast a line. The trout were biting even better than usual that afternoon. In no time, I had six nice ones caught, cleaned, and cooking over the campfire that I had started, with no help from my guests. There's nothing quite like eating a fish no more than 20 feet from where it was caught and less than an hour from when you pulled it out of the water. As the sun was setting, we had a mighty fine dinner on the bank of the current river. Anthony and I tucked in, but Hunter picked at his plate. I'm gonna have one of those sandwiches that we packed. He announced to no one in particular, and then he extracted a plastic container from his backpack and cracked the lid to release the unmistakable and sinister-to-me smell of peanut butter. He bit into the corner of a PB&J, with the enthusiasm of a small child, or in his case, a douchebag. Ainsley, who had been situated midway between me and her husband on the uphill side of the fire, scooted towards me. I'm so sorry, she whispered to me. I don't know why he's violating rule number seven. What the heck are you whispering about over there? Hunter yelled through a mouthful of sandwich. No, just keep the peanut butter away from me, I told him. And me, Ainsley added. 
if you're going to be eating peanut butter, you need to go take a walk along the river to do it. It's not safe to eat that in our camp. What the heck, Ainsley? Hunter yelled as he stood up from the log that he was sitting on. You're the one who freaking packed this. You know that I hate fish. And then he pulled a second sandwich out of the container and stalked off down the river with a sandwich in each hand. I'm so sorry for Hunter being like this. Ainsley said once he had disappeared beyond the glow of the campfire and into the rapidly darkening night. I don't know why he's being so difficult about your rules. He's putting all of our lives in danger. Well, uh, guess he's just having a bad day, I told her. Ainsley and I sat in silence for a moment, eating the last of the trout and listening to the sounds of the night. The river burbled. The fire crackled. Owls hooted in the woods. A silent bat swooped over the surface of the water Ainsley was studiously ignoring. And then rocks started plunking into the river. Hunter had resumed his game of trying to hit the sycamore tree now that it was illuminated by the light of a full moon. Ainsley grinned like a maniac beside me for a split second. But when she saw me looking at her, she made a visible effort to put on an expression of concern. What do you think? Is that going to get him killed? She asked me in a sober tone. What do you mean? Well, he's throwing rocks into the river at night while eating peanut butter. That's violating at least three of the rules. She was leaning forward and gesturing wildly as she spoke. In her excitement, she stopped whispering and had started talking loud and fast. Is it going to be one monster, or are there going to be a bunch of them? Will it maybe be that hellhound that I read about? I hear that dogs like peanut butter. Or maybe... Look, Ainsley, I began. Those rules are just for fun. And then there came a crash and a scream from downriver. I grabbed a flashlight and took off running. Ainsley jumped up and down and clapped her hands with glee. Hunter was easy to find because he was making a lot of noise. I can't say that I blamed him, because I would have hollered up a storm too. If a seven-foot-tall blue man thing was dragging me into the woods, the giant man was naked as a jaybird and covered with thin fur that left nothing to the imagination as it glinted a pale blue in the moonlight. The blue man had a hold of Hunter's left hand, which still clutched the remnants of the second PB&J sandwich. As the blue giant strode up to the bank, he lifted the sandwich along with Hunter's hand to his mouth and took a big bite. Hunter screamed as a couple of his fingers went along with the PB&J into the gullet of the monster. For reasons that I still don't understand, I sprinted toward the terror to try and rescue my jerk client. I drew the pistol that I carried more as a stage prop than as a weapon, and aimed it toward the creature while praying that I wouldn't hit Hunter. When my little gun popped the first time, the gravel between me and the blue man kicked up. When the monster turned to look at me, its almost human face had a quizzical expression on it. And then he took another bite out of Hunter's sandwich, along with another bunch of Hunter's fingers. It looked like Hunter was down to just the index finger and the thumb on his left hand. Hunter screamed and flailed as he dangled from the creature's grasp. Despite my knees shaking, I advanced and fired a second time. I somehow hit the blue man with that shot. 
and blood, I turned the creature's upper arm a deeper blue in the darkness. It roared and tossed Hunter away like a ragdoll. My client crumpled and lay still at the edge of the water, and then the blue man charged toward me. I was too scared to scream, but I was not too scared to run. I charged up the hillside and wove in and out of black oak and hickory trees while that thing chased after me, bellowing. I figured that since the blue man was a foot taller than me, I would probably be better at ducking under branches than he would be. Judging by these sounds of a splintering timber behind me, I was right about that, and I was able to put a little bit of distance between me and my pursuer. Unfortunately though, I wasn't escaping fast enough. I realized that I was never going to be able to get back to my house and its relative safety before collapsing from exhaustion or tripping over a log. Once I was down, I would be an easy meal for that thing. I had to come up with a better plan. And then I saw the glimmer of my campfire on the water and remembered the rifle that I had left there. If I was going to bring that monster down, I needed something with more stopping power than my little 9mm pistol and the rifle might just do the job. So I made a hard right turn and sprinted back down toward the river and our little camp. As I crashed into the firelight, Ainsley was nowhere to be seen. After I'd ran off, she had made a terrible mess. Both her and her husband's backpacks were laying on the ground beside their tent, with all their zippers opened and most of their contents strewn about. There were trail bars and socks and I don't know what else all scattered everywhere, but I didn't have time to think about that. I snatched up my rifle and had it pointed up the riverbank toward my pursuer before I realized that it wasn't loaded. Crap, I hollered as I fumbled around in my jacket pocket for the ammo. My shaking fingers dropped the first cartridge as the blue man stepped into the firelight. He towered over me and each of his powerful arms were easily four feet long. He growled at me and took a step forward. He seemed a little wary of the fire, so I hoped that I could keep the monster at bay long enough to load the gun. I backed away and felt for another bullet. Cold water began to lap around my ankles as I fumbled to load my rifle. And then the creature dashed around the fire and grabbed the front of my jacket with his good arm. The enormous hand had nails like a human, only they were long and dark and jagged. In the firelight, I could see that the skin beneath the fur was an even lighter blue than the fur, which was a silly thing to notice while being lifted into the air by an angry humanoid monster. I realized that I was never going to get the rifle loaded before the blue man began to take bites out of me, so I decided to throw the gun at the creature and try to wiggle out of its grasp in a final, desperate attempt to save my life. Then, some sort of little pellets rained down on the creature from downriver. I could smell the menace on the breeze. They were peanuts. Hey, big guy, you want more of these? Ainsley hollered from the edge of the firelight. She was holding a clear plastic tub that seemed to be about half full of peanuts. She grabbed another fistful and chucked them at the blue man, before turning and running back downstream. The creature scrunched its brow for a moment and then ran off after her, dropping me into the cold river in the process. Crap, 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 I told myself, 
as I scrambled out of the water. And then I loaded my rifle and ran off after Ainsley and the blue man. I found them just a hundred yards or so away, down where Hunter still lay unconscious alongside the river. His body was between Ainsley and the monster, and to my horror, I realized that she had slathered her husband with peanut butter. The open jar sat mostly empty on his chest. Loose peanuts were mounted up on him as well. The smell of all the peanuts were so strong that I could almost feel the anaphylaxis coming on. But I forced that concern out of my mind as I raised the rifle and tried to get a shot at the monster without hitting Ainsley. Before I could squeeze off a shot though, the blue man darted forward, scooped up Hunter, and plunged into the river carrying the comatose man like a prize. The last I saw of them, the giant was holding Hunter like an ear of corn, taking big bites of peanut butter and human as he went up the far bank at an inhuman clap. I collapsed into a heap as the blue man and Hunter disappeared into the night across the river. Ainsley beamed as she picked up the jar of peanut butter and screwed the lid back on. I'm really sorry, Ainsley. I said to her after I had caught my breath. I had no idea. Oh, don't worry, Ainsley said in a bright voice. Hunter never was very good at following rules, especially rules that he didn't read, so you shouldn't really blame yourself. Well, I guess, but... She shushed me with a gesture and started walking back to our disheveled camp, and I followed. When we got there, she fished a plastic bottle of vodka out of the bottom of Hunter's crumpled backpack. She poured half of it into the river, and then tossed the bottle and its remaining contents onto the sand by her tent. It sure is a shame that my husband got drunk and took a midnight swim. Who knows if he drowned or got eaten by the wildlife around here. What are you talking about? I asked her. I know what I saw. I can't believe that I saw it, but... Ainsley held up her hand and shushed me again. What I'm talking about is paying you 50k to confirm that my husband, despite all of our warnings, drank a half a bottle of vodka and went swimming in the river tonight. I looked at her with my mouth dangling open as I tried to process what had just happened. She continued in a voice that a mother might use to explain as something unpleasant but necessary to a child. I imagine that the drunken drowning story will be better for both of us than what actually happened, don't you? I thought for a second about trying to explain to the sheriff that a giant blue man had eaten one of my clients and that another one of my clients had seemingly prepared the victim for consumption by basting him in peanut butter. I sighed. I suppose so, I said. I know the sheriff and he's not going to look too hard for a body if they don't find anything floating in the river. Great, Ainsley replied. Do you suppose those fish are still biting? I'm hungry and I don't think either of us are going to sleep tonight. Yeah, I said. They'll be biting. The really big trout like to feed in the moonlight. I'll pay you another 500 for some fish. I caught the fish while Ainsley cleaned up the camp. Thank you all once again for listening to today's podcast. Thanksgiving may be over, but I'm definitely still thankful for all of you guys making this possible. 
I'm also thankful for today's sponsor, ShipStation. Use my offer code, MrCreeps, to get a 60-day free trial. Just enough time to handle the holiday rush. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top, and enter code MrCreeps. I hope you guys have an amazing morning, day, or night, wherever you may be in the world. Stay warm out there, and as always, stay creepy.